Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. We have nothing but awesome stuff to talk about. Yeah. We are reviewing in spoiler-free detail God of War yes. uh, for the PS4 because we are at different points in the game and not finished with it, so this will be an impressions discussion. Yeah, mostly like gameplay stuff mm-hmm. and that kind of that side of it. Yeah, we'll do a spoiler cast on that next week. Uh, but we're doing a full spoiler cast today on Avengers Infinity War. If you have not seen the biggest movie in the world right now... Um, it's kind of weird if you wanted to see it and you haven't yet, but yeah. that's okay. If you're waiting, that's fine. Just, we will let you know when the spoilers come. We won't, I don't get this movie spoiled for you. It's so surprising and I love yeah. that about it. Um, but we will be doing both of that. We have some news. Um, we are, I should just say this is our last podcast of April, um, mathematically, because <laughs> this is the end of April. Yes. And we are not going to have our Doctor Who bonus pod for you yet. We were going to record it last week and then we didn't have a podcast at all last week because I had a personal emergency uh, with a friend of mine. Um, it's okay now. I just, I had not even touched God of War until Monday. So it was like, uh, we, we couldn't have done it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and there was too much going on. So we haven't, we'll do our Doctor Who one. That'll be a May episode. But we'll get to it. That's our eighth Doctor one. Yep. You know, weird things happen with the eighth Doctor. So it makes sense. Yes. It's, it's, if there's one that we can miss the month on, it's eighth Doctor because, you know, we missed the decade. Yes. Right. He missed a lot of stuff. <laughs> yes. Like television. But yeah. anyway, uh, yeah, so we have all that to talk about. We're back. I'm so happy to be back. We've got lots to talk about. But Sean, quick spoiler-free takes as we always do. Yeah. First up, Infinity War. What'd you think? Uh, I love it. I think it's it's an amazing, just, it's like the most blockbuster blockbuster movie ever made, I think is how I would sort of sum it up. And it does have things like kind of you're alluding to <clears throat> of you don't want it spoiled. It does have elements of it that are surprising, for sure. But it's also, it's just beat for beat them executing on like little character setups and things that have been building across all the movies and just using the different actors and characters they have available in the roster at this point for Marvel and just using that to like its utmost effect and having fun weird character pairings and just having characters bounce off of each other both in action scenes and in like comic uh, dialogue scenes all that stuff is so exciting the movie is like two and a half hours, but it's about the fastest two and a half hours I've ever seen oh, yeah. in a movie because it's just so chock full of really great stuff and it's constantly moving at this fantastic pace. Like it is definitely, it has some issues that if, of course it's going to have some issues. Like there's no way this movie gets made and it's some sort of like perfect, amazing movie. It is, you know, bloated in some areas. There are like some things it's like, oh, this character isn't used for their full potential. That kind of stuff happens here and there in the film. But particularly when you consider the task that they were set with in making this ridiculous fucking bonkers ass movie with this insane cast of people, like it's kind of like the the situation they had when they made Avengers One, but to like the fifth power. Remember when they only had to put five characters in a movie? Exactly. Now they're like twenty five or whatever it is, and so it's just you know it should be a giant flaming ball of nonsense on the mo- on screen at all times, and it is surprisingly it is completely legible. I understand everything that happened in that movie. It has like really strong, clear character arcs that follow through. It's got an interesting plot. It's like it's got a great ending. It's got great action. It's got a great villain. It's got a great fucking villain. And I, I think that's one of the key things that ties the whole movie together is that they really executed on Thanos to a level that I would not have expected. No, like, not at all. That's not a character that I'm usually interested in, even in the comics. So yeah, it's just a great movie. You know, I said on Twitter when I saw it, I think it's an obscene amount of fun. Yeah. Like, a, like you're watching and you're like, this is too much fun? This is like eating a gallon of ice cream? I feel like it's bad for me? 
But at the same time, so I've seen it twice now because I felt like I had to go see it again to like wrap my head around it before yeah. this discussion. As I saw it opening night, Thursday night, and then Saturday afternoon. And different experiences because like different crowd sizes and stuff. And, you know, the second time I didn't have that same rush of like surprises. But I was able to focus on, I think it's a really good movie. Like yeah. it is, that is the most surprising thing about it to me is I was looking forward to it just on the level of like, all our favorite heroes mashed up, which Marvel always does that thing well. Mm -hmm. Do they always put a good plot on it? It's hit or miss, you know, yeah. like Civil War and Avengers 1, absolutely. Avengers 2, not so much. You know, areas in other movies, not as yeah. much. But, like, uh, it has a really good plot. Is it, it is its own movie. Like, it does leave open the next story to tell, obviously. If you've seen it, you know what I mean. But, like, it is a film with a beginning, middle, and end. And it has... I think a really interesting editorial structure. I think yeah. it's it's edited and directed and written really well, acted amazingly well. Like uh, it's better than I thought it was going to be. Oh yeah, by a lot. Yeah, like, it, it's something that I always thought assumed it was going to be enjoyable, but like I always kind of thought, oh, this is probably going to be a big mess, you yeah. know? And and it is not. Like no. it, yeah, it is some of the stuff that's most impressive to me is the way they managed to capture the different like feel of the different characters, like particularly having like the Guardians of the Galaxy in there now and like Doctor Strange. We have so many like really weird characters in Black Panther that have like their own kind of a specific aesthetic and dialogue style and that kind of stuff, and they integrate that so perfectly. Yeah, we'll get into all of that, but it really... I was saying this to my brother earlier today. When you meet the Guardians of the Galaxy, it feels like we just cut away to... Someone put in a DVD of Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Yeah. And we just went over that, and then suddenly, as you've seen from the trailers, Thor lands on their windshield, and, and we're back in a... You know, like, like yeah. they do it so perfectly, and that is one of the most impressive things, because Marvel has a lot of voices at this point, and they were able to wrangle them all together. So, very impressive. And quick same thing on, on God of War. Yeah, no, I uh, I love this game so much. I wish, like, the only thing I wish is that I had more time to play it because it hit me at, like, my busiest time this year because, like, a lot of stuff is going on with me getting, like, like the teacher license program and all that shit. There's a lot of projects and everything I have to handle at the end of April. And so it hit right then. And I've been putting basically every moment I can into playing God of War because it sunk its hooks deep into me. Is it like basically my like like one sentence review for God of War is they made a video game for me. Yeah. It's like it is this action adventure kind of game that's sort of a bit like what the old God of Wars are, but obviously like updated more for the sort of standards of modern video games. But it has a lot of the same inspirations from Ocarina of Time, which is a big inspiration in God of War One, and sort of like some of those character action games from the kind of the early PS2 era, like a Ninja Gaiden or Devil May Cry. It's got that kind of stuff in there. And then it's got like just a big chunk of Dark Souls thrown in there also. And then it's also Norse mythology, which I love. I love mythology, generally speaking, but Norse mythology is really awesome. It's, it's my fave. Yeah, it's it's just got all this awesome shit in it. And it is, it is remarkable to me, the, the kind of like... Also thinking about like the project that they had with Infinity War and like this kind of feels like the deck is stacked against you. God of War had some of those things as well of like the, you're trying to re like sort of reinvigorate this franchise that had been gone for like eight years. The last like God of War three was not great. Like like God of War three is a fine game, but it's easily the weakest of those three. It leaves the story off on a really bad note. And it's like, what do you do with Kratos 
Like, how do you bring that character back? What do you do with that? Like, all of those questions are really hard questions, I think, to answer. And the the approach they took with it by going to Norse mythology and, like, being, you know, God knows how long after the end of God of War 3 and how long we've been away from Kratos and how much he has sort of changed and become weirdly, like, somber and gruff and reflective. Like, he's still angry, but he doesn't have anything concrete to direct his anger at anymore. And those directions of that character I find really fascinating and then at the end of the day, the combat system in God That's of War so is maybe the best combat system I've seen in the third-person action game. Like, like melee combat system. For me, I agree on that. And it's easily for me because I don't really play like a Dark Souls kind right. of thing. You know, which I assume would be kind of the big competition. Yes, that's but basically like, Bloodborne is the other big competitor for me. Yeah, and I would put it well above like, I don't know, Witcher 3 or something. Mm-hmm. Like... Not to uh, put down Witcher 3, just this is on a different level. And yeah, it's like, it's a big focus of the game. The game uses combat a lot, but it is just fucking incredible. I I agree. I had some trepidation early, in the early hours of the game, and I will admit some of this was I started playing it coming off of a terrible fucking weekend related to that personal emergency. And so I was just in a cynical mood. I sat down, I was like, all right, prove it, game, prove it. Right, because it also it came off of like the back of having like it's got like a fucking ninety five on Metacritic, right. which is almost Ex- unheard of. So exactly. Like, yeah, and and I will say, go into this go into this game. I'm not gonna say temper your expectations, but put the hype in the back of your mind for a while because the game does not show its hand for several hours. Yeah, it's like, got a lot of systems and things to sort yeah. of like play out. And I do think some of the early hours are a little too labored and and long, but. Once you see what the game is, I agree with everything you said, and I agree it feels like a game for me, too. Like, I can list all the influences. Like, it's got a ton of Uncharted. It's got a ton of The Last of Us. It's got a ton of Diablo, weirdly. Um, and, like, the whole rune system and equipment sure. and stuff. It's got a lot of Zelda and Witcher and how it does side quests. And, you know, like you were saying with the Ocarina of Time, kind of how it does its world. Like, it kind of feels like they took many of my favorite games and put them in a blender and added Norse mythology. And... That's the other thing is so much of this game should feel tired to me because it's a lot of things that have been kind of done to death lately, like the Norse mythology. Like, if you've played Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice, especially the early hours of this game feel like that but less avant-garde, and it eventually becomes its own thing, but they have very similar kind of setups. Um, and they even have a similar kind of, like, voice who tells you mythology who sounds like it's the same actor, which is weird. Um, but, like... Or, like, the, the Naughty Dog elements of it, which are really prevalent. Um, prevalent. And it's just the level of execution on this game is so absurdly high. And there is so much passion. And the specific cocktail it blends with all those elements is so different than anything I've ever played that I'm obsessed with it. I fucking love it. It's also probably the most gorgeous video game ever made in terms of, like, 3D big blockbuster game design. Uh, and I should say, and this will be an interesting part of our discussion, I've never played a God of War game. Right, yeah. Or touched one. I don't own one. I I have seen you play it a little, and I know, like, I know the iconography of it. Like, yeah. I know Kratos, I know his big blade things, you Blades know. Blades of Chaos, yeah. Yeah, I know all that. But, like... I like I would not be one of the people who would know that they changed Kratos's voice, you know? Right, yeah. And I think it speaks to this game that it works great for you who loves the series and me who knows nothing about the series. So just play it. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why they didn't call it God of War 4 is because it is 100% you can come in with basically no knowledge of what yeah. it is. And in some ways I think that would be almost even like not necessarily be more interesting, but it'd be an interesting perspective if you had no idea who Kratos is, and at the beginning of the game you're like, 
who the fuck is this guy? Like, how can he fight these gods? Like, what is up? What is Whoa. this deal? I like the way that, the, how coy the game is with that. Because I like imagining someone who's, you know, like, 16 or something that has been, like, God of War has never been a part of, like, the, like, media landscape that they grew up in. So they had no osmosis of who Kratos was. And they're just like, I don't know. I don't know. Like As someone who's even further into the game than you are, I'll say this. Not only do I think that would work for that person, it would work ridiculously well. Awesome. Yeah. Because I, I am still waiting for, like, that sort of shoe to drop for like it yeah. the, like then to like just go full out like this is yeah. who this dude is yeah it's not like they're never gonna tell you they're gonna lay it out and the way they do it i'll just yeah. tell you sean be ready for it i'm excited all right uh let's get into the, the stuff and then the news do you have any stuff going on sean besides I, being busy i have one piece of stuff that is related to my being busy in okay. some way because this, it's this is a weird random piece of stuff but it's just been an obsession of mine for the past i guess it's been three or four days so a couple of days ago, so, so back up, like part of my teacher license program is I spend time in high schools, like working with students and helping out teachers in the classroom, right? So um, the one class that I've been with for a while is ninth graders, and, and all of my stuff is in English literature, and they started doing Romeo and Juliet. And so for this Romeo and Juliet unit they're doing, uh, they are watching bits of the movies, which kind of like the same movies that we watched, Jonathan, which are the Zeffirelli version from 1968. Classic. Love Boring. It. I love it. It said, like, watch that movie again. It's not okay. a good... I would not show it to high school. Like, I'm not the one who decides how to teach Romeo okay. and Juliet. I'm just, have, I'm just like helping. If you watch it as an adult, it's a really good movie. Okay. Um, and some of the stuff, particularly, they do act three really well in that movie. I will give it another try. I have not seen it since... We saw it together in, in ninth in grade. Like, yeah, and watch it, because here's part of my thesis, because the other thing is, we've been watching the Baz Luhrmann movie worst One of the worst movies ever made. It's not good. Um, and, like, one of the interesting things is, like, that Zeffirelli version is a, like, is a proper movie movie, and so right. I think one of the reasons why I remember not liking it, I think one of the reasons you remember not liking it, is that it is a really bad fucking movie to watch in, like, 40 to 50 minute chunks. That's true. You should just sit down and watch the whole movie. Whereas um, Baz Luhrmann's movie uh, adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, which for those who don't know, it was made in the mid-90s. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio's Romeo, uh, Claire Danes as Juliet. Um, it's like sort of a ha- like madcap modern adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, like set in Verona Beach in the mid-90s. And, you know, that's sort of, you know, if you've ever seen another Baz Luhrmann movie like Moulin Rouge or the modern, uh, like the 2012 or whatever it was, Great Gatsby um, you kind of know what to expect from his style and whether or not you would like that. I don't really like it, it's just, and I've never really liked it, so watching it again... But I, I just think that's particularly bad, Boz Lerman, because it's they literally just shout all their lines, or they mumble all their lines, yeah. and no one in there knows how to deliver Shakespeare. But Yeah, and it's like something where if you watch five to ten minute chunks of the Baz Luhrmann version in like the specific scenes that he gives a shit about because he only gives a shit about what it feels like maybe 40% of the play and the other 60% he either cuts out with like out doing anything to sort of work around what he cut out or he just like straight up just sort of like eh, just mumble through your lines like this is like you need to do this scene between Benvolio and Romeo in act one but he doesn't give a shit. He doesn't care because there's nothing visually he can like like zoom in 500 times on and like make cartoon sound effects. But so the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I had to watch the first 40 minutes, like Act One of the Baz Luhrmann version, like six fucking times the other day. I'm so sorry, Sean. Yeah, because I'm only there on certain days of the week, so I'm not getting the full movies. I'm just getting like these specific chunks and then watching them over and over again. It's just like you have to understand if like. High school English teachers have to see the same 
fucking movies over and over again and see read the same fucking books over and over again because these stupid kids don't get it. Um, why not? Uh, legitimate question. Why yeah. not just show like one of the BBC productions? Like, I I would like that. Like that seems like it would be the most sober. Good, just basic version to show. Yeah, and that's actually that's what this school did for Julius Caesar that the sophomores okay. were doing, and which is kind of ironic because I would actually do one of the movie Julius Caesars because there's some good movie Julius Caesars I think yeah. are better than any of the Romeo and Juliet. I mean, I would just teach ones that there are rough Akira Kurosawa equivalents to, <laughs> and show Throne of Blood for Macbeth or something. I don't think most of the high schoolers would would buy into Throne of Blood. I'm sorry, Jonathan. It's particularly not watching it in 40-minute segments. Toshiro Mifune gets like a million arrows flung, flung at him. Hey, you don't need to convince me of the quality of I'm just of Throne saying, of Blood. I think I could show that to some high schoolers and be like, they did that? He's actually shitting his pants in that scene. Yeah, and there will be like one student in the class that will love that, and then there will be 20 that fucking Well, that's the student who passes my class. Okay. Yeah, so, but I'm anyways... Sorry. Back to the the best Lerman version of that of fucking Romeo and Juliet. It's a it's not a very good version of the play. In particular, like the opening scene of the play, he he like changes the like the affiliation of a bunch of the characters in a way that makes no fucking sense to me. Because the beginning of the play is these two Capulet dudes, Capulet being the Ju- Juliet's family. Uh, Gregory and Samson, I think, talking shit about the Montagues, which is Romeo's family, and then Abraham and Montague hear like hears them, and and they're like, oh, like they bite his th- their thumb at Abraham, which is an insult, and he's like, do you bite your thumb at me, sir? And they're like, I do bite my thumb, sir, but I don't bite my thumb at you, sir. And in the play, it is this like these two guys fronting on each other and like like trying to goad each other into a fight it's because they're you know these feuding clans. In the movie, it's like. They, for no reason at all, they flip the affiliation so that Gregory and Samson are Montagues and Abraham is a Capulet. No idea why you do that. It's, like, meanlessly, like... Yeah, it just changes, like, the whole dynamic of how the two families feel, which doesn't make any sense. Because you have Tybalt, who is, like, the hot-blooded John Leguizamo in the movie, which is, like, he... It is good casting. It's good casting. He deserved more than this movie to give him because he's a really good Tybalt. But yeah, like he's supposed to be really hot blooded, so the Capulets are supposed to feel hot blooded. It's just like it's it just throws like all this weird wrench into the dynamic of the two families for no reason. And then he changes the connotation of the two guys and like sort of like trying to goad each other into a fight as the Montagues like being like, Oh, we're gonna to try to pick a fight, and then when the Capulet guy pays attention to them, they're like, No, we don't bite our thumb at you, sir. It's like that's not what the line is going for it's like it feels like he doesn't understand what the language is saying not just that like some of the actors aren't giving it their all so that's really annoying also i have not seen a like heartthrob leonardo dicaprio performance in a long time he hasn't done them in a long time he hasn't done that it's so obviously it's like from that specific era with like titanic and stuff like that's obviously the reason why he was cast as Romeo, and I love modern Leonardo DiCaprio. He's fucking awesome these days. Like once he got out of the nineties, like like once he got early two thousands, DiCaprio with like Departed it's, and stuff. It, it's once fantastic. he decided I will be covered in blood, mud, or bruises in all of my roles one hundred percent of the time. Yeah, it, it's something where it's like feels like he sat down and had like a dinner with Martin Scorsese, and Martin Scorsese is like, Leo, you're a weird fucking dude. <laughs> You should be weird in your movies. Yes. Like, because in Romeo and Juliet, he gives the most boring-ass fucking understated performance. 
And Romeo's not a great role. Like I, it's a hard, it's a hard role to play in an interesting way because he's a yeah. boring fucking character. Like you know, I am not a huge fan of the way that Romeo usually is done. I don't not usually a fan of how he's written in the play. Like I just think he's a rough character, and you can kind of get the sense that. I think like Shakespeare kind of stopped giving a shit about Romeo at, by about Act Three. And it was, it's like, Juliet's Merc- show, by the it's end. Juliet, and it's like Mercutio's a more interesting character. But anyways, fucking Leonardo DiCaprio just is mumbling through every single line. He doesn't give a shit. It's like I get that Romeo is supposed to be mopey, but there's you can act mopey and be interesting, and then you can actually feel like I just don't want to be playing this character, and I am trapped in this movie. And it particularly doesn't work well when all the other, like, side characters, like Tybalt and Mercutio, are played like they're fucking cartoon characters. And then Romeo and Juliet are these really dull, boring, like, understated performances. I remember Claire Danes tries. She tries. And she's a great actor, but I don't know how... But Baz Luhrmann is not interested in those two in no. his movie, so it's a weird thing. And it's just, it's something that the whole focus of the movie feels askew because the outside characters are, like, really over the top and interesting. Like, I could just sit there and watch John Leguizamo choose scenery as Tybalt forever. I love it. And then you cut to Leonardo DiCaprio or Claire Danes, and they're just, like, normal kind of boring people. And it doesn't make, it like, the aesthetic doesn't gel. But, like, all of that was would not be enough of a reason for me to bring it up on this podcast. The reason why I'm bringing it up on this podcast, Jonathan, is that this movie in 1996 has Paul Rudd in it playing Paris, who is... Oh, right! Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes, Paris is um, the, the older gentleman that Juliet's father, Lord Capulet, wants Juliet to hook up with. That's kind of like an arranged marriage that she doesn't want to do. She wants to be with Romeo. And I had no idea that Paul Rudd was in this movie. Because this is, like, you know, this is before all, like, the Judd Apatow comedies and stuff like that, where he kind of got bigger and famous. And then now he's fucking Ant-Man, which was a great moment when one of the students in the class is like, who's that guy again? And it felt like every single other person in the class just, like, turned to him and just said, it's Ant-Man at the same time. Because everybody just knows him as Ant-Man now. And Paul Rudd, no shit, gives the best performance in the movie. He has almost no lines. And this is again, this is going off of Act 1. So the only thing he's really in is, like, the ballroom, like, dance scene. Like, the sort of the big mask ball at the beginning where Romeo and Juliet meet. Where he's sort of trying to woo Juliet a little bit. And he's kind of dancing with Lady Capulet. But he's, like, Paris... I don't even know if Paris actually has any lines in that scene in the play. He's just supposed to be there. I don't believe he does. And so having fucking Paul Rudd just in the background wearing an astronaut outfit by the way because that's his costume to the costume ball so he's dressed as an astronaut and he's in the background of almost every single shot and the only way i was able to like stomach watch this fucking like sequence over and over and over again was just staring at paul red to be fascinated because like he's fucking he's doing all this goofy shit like he's like kissing Juliet's hand and like making these like butterfly like flying away motions and all this stuff it's just every single moment he's on screen he's doing something interesting and it's the kind of role that you don't need to do anything with you know Paul Rudd is the kind of actor who has never not been amazing yes anything he does he goes 110 percent and he will he will make it worth watching he is Absolutely. one of the very few actors you can say that about. Because you can just tell that the reason he's cast is that he's a very, like, unassuming, normally handsome dude. Right. You know, like, that's it. That's, like, that's Paul Rudd is this, like, normal, handsome guy. Before you find out, like, you know, he's in all these, like, really funny comedies and he kind of shows off what he can do. That feels like that's why he was cast. And they just ended up getting this dude who would become, like, a movie star in a couple of decades. It's like, fuck it. It's fucking Paul Rudd. And the other thing that's amazing about it is it feels like you, like, 
stepped in a weird time machine or something because Paul Rudd looks exactly the same. <laughs> it's been 20 fucking years and that dude has not aged a day. It is we- It is kind of creepy at a certain point. Yeah, it's really bizarre. Because usually you don't have someone starring in a movie like that in 1996 and then headlining a studio tentpole superhero movie 20 years later. Exactly. It is the kind of thing where I've seen some stuff of like there's the Roger Corman B-movie Little Shop of Horrors that has Jack Nicholson in it. When, like, way before his career, like, got big. And, like, that's a surreal movie to watch and see Jack Nicholson in it when he was, like, young. But also, he doesn't quite... He's not fully Jack Nicholson no. yet. It's like, I've seen a bunch of movies like that with, like, old movies before, like, people got big and they're, like, a background character or something. And it, usually you can see it's like, oh, they're not quite... Like, they're still forming as this star. It's like, Paul Rudd is just fucking... Like, it looks like he stepped off the set of Ant-Man, put on an astronaut suit, and started kissing Claire Dane's <laughs> hand. Like, it's it's so bizarre. So well, if, in, in Avengers 4, when they do the ballroom scene where all the superheroes get together and have a dance, he can just recreate that. I, I hope he does, because if, if you are ever stuck in this the unenviable situation of having to watch this fucking movie over and over again, the one like light of joy you have waiting for you is just fucking watching Paul Rudd in every single shot he's in, because he's always good, and he's always doing something have, weird, and he has like no lines. While we're randomly talking about Romeo and Juliet, okay, yeah. have we ever told the podcast about the thing we tried to make with Romeo and Juliet once? I don't think so. So we were really in in high school into like filmmaking and different things. We did yeah. all these different projects. Basically, it was whenever we got to do a project for school, it's like, okay, we're going to go way above and beyond and do some crazy film thing that may or may not fulfill the requirements of the assignment. Yes. Um, but one of the things we got into was doing machinima. This was back when Red vs. Blue was really big. Mm-hmm. And it was the Halo 3. Yeah, because it was like 2007, 2008, around there. Right. Yeah. And I wound up... We, we, did, we did one for the, the John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, yeah. which I still have fond memories of. Yes. Um, we did then, one for Live versus Lay, I think, was the first one we did. Right? Yes, it was like a grammar. A grammar point. thing. Yes. But then we wanted to get bigger. And I wrote, uh, and you helped me with this, and then we were going to co-direct it. Um, a, it was going to be a five-episode miniseries of Romeo and Juliet in Halo. Yeah. And it was going to be like implicitly the starting point was going to be kind of a red versus blue riff of like Box Canyon, two families. Because it's a funny way to do Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. But we got really into it. And I have revised those scripts every couple of years. Um, wanting to maybe try to find it out. We tried to launch it again in college. And it didn't work. But anyway, yeah. um, and now I feel like the moment has passed and probably never going to happen. I should put the scripts out there because they're legitimately really good. It's yeah. like it's actually, honestly, I think one of the best things I've written. <laughs> and I really like it. But we had fun like because we broke the story together and stuff. And it would be like figuring out how to adapt this play into this sci-fi setting. And like legitimately, it, it made me dislike other Shakespeare movies more because I realized we were being more creative with it. Yeah, it's... It's like, a weird thing. It's like in the Baz Luhrmann version where they all have guns and there's this just fucking... Maybe the the, sh- the shot in a movie I hate more than any other shot in any movie I've ever seen where they do this because I think Benvolio has some line about like, put up your swords or something and then there's just this shot where they zoom in really close on the fucking like Beretta pistol this dude has and it just says sword on the side of it because that's supposed to yep. be the brand of the gun and <laughs> I fucking, like I swear to God when I saw that for like the fifth time I just wanted to snap the desk I was sitting at in half because it's so stupid. But it was, it was so fun to write these scripts and I remember spending so many hours with it with my like Barnes and Noble copy of the play open and I would like transpose like I took a speech Juliet has from way late in the play 
uh, and put it as like her opening because it was actually a good way to introduce the character because otherwise cinematically she doesn't really have an introduction. Yeah. Like and all these things was really fun. But also like it makes me hate that Boz Lerman thing anymore because if you want to do like sci-fi gun stuff you can have fun with it. One of my favorites that when I go back and edit the scripts always makes me laugh really hard is it's a scene where Benvolio and Romeo are talking about Romeo's heart sickness. And I think we had a fun take on Romeo in this yeah. whole thing. But part of it is they're, 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 they're talking about heart sickness and they're both on a cliff sniping at the, at the Capulets. Right, yeah. And it would be like, you know, it's like, um, you know, some line about like, you know, oh, doth love, blah, 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 something. And then they would take a shot and just like shoot someone. And then they would go back to talking about it. And I'm so sad we never got to film that scene. Yeah. Or, or pull that off because I think it would have been really funny. And we had a lot of stuff like that thrown in there. We made Romeo like kind of... The way, like, into him was that he has rage problems. Right, yes. And I I think we have him kill Paris. He kills... Does he kill Paris in the fight? He kills Paris at the end, yeah. They usually cut that out of movies, though. Um, We had him do that, but also, like, a bunch of other people die. There's a scene where Mr. Capulet, uh, Juliet's father, gets really mad, so he murders the nurse. Because I realized... After this point in the play, the nurse has no yeah, lines. Yeah, she just sort of disappears as a character. So you should kill her. Yeah. It's a good thing for episode four. You kill the nurse. Like, we were going to have uh, the church, because this was when you had Forge World and stuff. Yeah. Was we were going to have it be a church in the sky. We actually built that set in Halo, and it was really cool. And there was going to be all this stuff about that. Anyway, I just want to talk about that, because that's still one of my, my sadnesses inside, is that we never made that series. Yes, it was maybe too ambitious. It, was, <laughs> like, it would have taken so so lot to actually film all that shit. And well, and get dialogue. Figure out voices for yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. The only person we really had cast was you were going to do Romeo. Yeah, but yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. Wow, this is a podcast that's going to be titled "Reviewing Avengers: Infinity War," and we have spent 15 minutes talking about Shakespeare. You know, hey, this is it's going to get more. The more I end up watching these fucking movies over and over again, I, I oh have man. to express it. It'll be my version of your weird ass like avant garde movies you have to watch. Is <laughs> yes. like I just have to watch fucking Romeo and Juliet by Baz Luhrmann a hundred times before I die. I I would not. I would I would walk out. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> you the have one. You the, have stamina, sir. I will give Luhrmann credit on one thing. I think it was clever that he he did the prologue thing at the very beginning by the chorus that kind of tells you the plot of the play, and he frames it as a trailer for the movie you're about to watch. I think that's an okay idea. Okay idea, yes. It's an okay idea. <laughs> yes. All right. You want to do some news, Sean? What's going on in the news, Jonathan? Um, all right. I'm going to start with something. This isn't really news, but it's just something I want to highlight in the world. I've kind of got a movie section and then a video game section. But in the movie section, um, one of our favorite people on YouTube is a woman by the name of Lindsay Ellis. Yes. Who is a video essayist. Um, does vi- she? Uh, you might know her from the past. She was the nostalgia chick on the now collapsing channel Awesome. Yeah. Which we haven't talked about. Um, but she is much, much more than that because uh, she is really, I think, one of the most educated and intelligent voices on film on the internet right now. Yeah. Most voices on film on the internet right now are neither of those things. <laughs> neither educated nor intelligent. But she makes these great video essays. She really has a thing for doing, like, essays about Disney movies and stuff. Yeah. Which is great, because I have no interest in that. So I'm glad someone else is doing that, and I can learn from it. Yeah, exactly. It's what's great. Yeah, it is. It's always nice when you find someone who's really good at presenting information from a subject that you're not interested in experiencing, like, the primary version of. So right. you get the benefit of all their knowledge without having to go through all their suffering. Exactly. That's why we talk about Digimon so much exactly <laughs> no um but she's really great and recently she did a three-part series uh, on her youtube channel on the hobbit movies 
And I think this is the best film criticism done on those films to date. And I think it will be the definitive take on those movies for years to come. Because I don't think anyone has done the legwork of both. Because what she does is she not only does a very deep dive into what is problematic about the movies and why they got to be the way they are. um, But also that second question, like the production questions. And she gets into that and in the third part even goes to New Zealand and interviews a lot of people involved in the production and talks about all these like political things that happened with The Hobbit that I think I knew in like the back of my head from news articles back in the day, but had never really thought about. And like basically widespread labor abuses that happened because the government of New Zealand so desperately wanted this production and Warner Brothers worked them like a mob boss. Yeah. And it is a tremendous... It's like 90 minutes altogether because they're three 30-minute parts. It is entertaining. It is so well-educated. And it really made me think about those movies in a very different light, you know? Yeah. Because I think they're really tough movies to break down critically. And I don't envy her that task, you know? Yeah, they're, they're complicated movies because, like, you have to consider everything about the original movies, the Lord of the Rings movies, and then obviously the books, and then, like, the fucking Guillermo del Toro project that she goes in and talks about that. It's a really interesting project because most of her videos have been, like, what I would call, like, a more traditional video essay. Like, traditional is maybe a weird word to use because video essays are kind of, like, a newer thing and, and getting more popular. But it's, you know, it's more like sort of focusing on a specific movie or a set of movies and kind of talking about it in an academic way and breaking them apart but this is almost like a mix between that and a documentary where yeah like, like you said she goes to new zealand and she's interviewing i forget who the actor is but it's one of the actors that plays with the dwarves he's, that lives he's, in new it's oin from the movies yeah, oin from the movies and so she's interviewing him and then particularly the third part she's interviewing a lot of other people from new zealand that were involved or or tangential to the like political and labor mess that was going on with all that stuff and so it's this really interesting middle ground between those two forms that, yeah, I think people should 100% check it out. It's the kind of thing that I hope, like, there are people, you know, with those skills kind of following some of the stuff that Lindsay Ellis is doing. Because yes. I think it's an interesting new direction to take sort of, like, critical work and, and sort of more academic work and making it accept, accept, like accessible and acceptable to a larger public. It's really inspirational to me because I would love to do something like that one day. I, I find the idea daunting. I, I'm so amazed by her like production talents because yeah. writing that stuff is hard enough. Writing yeah. an essay is hard, you know? Yes. But yeah. then turning that into a video just kind of boggles the mind. But she's very good at it. And yeah, these Hobbit videos, it's just... I, I think she's able to contextualize what doesn't work about these movies. But also bring in a broader view that shows the context they exist in. In that they are kind of the worst case scenario for Hollywood greed. Mm-hmm. Ruining what could have been of because she goes into a lot of like what's the promise of these projects? What's all the things they do well? Like you know how they do Bilbo and how they do yeah. Gandalf and the dwarves and all that. And it's and I think she also balances this interesting question about you know nostalgic properties and recurrence of those things in a way that is really tough to deal with. Um, and she kind of lets the nuances of that linger. And I was just. I want to recommend it. I'm very impressed. She's the first person I've seen lay out a compelling argument for why they got split into three movies. uh, And then also show just how much of a mistake that was. Yeah. But yeah, it's very interesting. And I'm wondering also how prescient a lot of what she kind of hints at and thinks about will be when one day we get the sodium pentothal interview with Peter Jackson where he goes off on Warner Brothers. Yes, yeah, so once it's like 20 years from now when it's like, you know, it's far enough away that you can just say whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, It's coming. It'll happen one day. Absolutely. Like, you know, Martin Freeman seems like a very nice guy. One day he might not give a fuck. Who knows? You know? Yeah, just, you know, I've... 
Yeah, I want to hear Martin Freeman's like stories from the trenches, like what his perspective is as fucking Bilbo Baggins. Whose role was continually just kind of sidelined in movies where he is the title character. Yes, yeah, until like the very end in the last movie, he kind of feels like he's barely in it. Yeah, it's so weird. Anyway, wanted to mention that. Um, so that's a really good thing that exists in the world. Here's a really bad thing that exists in the world. Sean, that Venom movie is still happening. Yeah. The Sony Venom movie. They put out a second trailer. You might remember the first trailer was one of the most baffling pieces of film marketing ever made. It was a trailer for any movie. Yes. Like, you could have told me that you were going to make any movie based off of that trailer. It's like, this is romantic comedy, this is a horror movie, this is an action movie, this is a spy thriller. Like, you could convince me because there was nothing in the first trailer. No. Uh, they put out a new one. It is clearly a trailer for a movie called Venom. Because it has... He says, we are Venom at the end. So, well, yeah. well, he has a weird... Dick tongue coming out of his mouth. Oh, that's just Venom. You know, that's yeah. That's but when it's you... rendered in three D CGI, it looks very yeah. When you can actually see it moving, that is a good point. It, yeah. it takes on a slightly more explicitly sexual connotation. Anyway, uh, so there's that. But yeah, uh, Sean, I don't usually just you know try to rag on movies before they come out, but this looks like one of the worst movies ever made. I just it, for me, it's that I just don't understand why they're making it. Like I just it I makes can't, no sense. I can't get past that point. I can't think about the movie as something that actually exists because there is no reason to make it without it, it being attached to fucking Spider Man. Like the production values are awful. Like you can tell, like they have one action scene in the entire movie, and it's when he's driving down on his motorcycle, and like he's got the venom webs coming out because that's all they've shown in the two trailers. It's really fucking cheap looking, and I just I've seen enough of these movies where you see that, and then you see the movie, and that's all there is. Yeah, and you can just tell that's all they have. He's probably not going to become venom for ninety minutes, and it's probably like a hundred and ten minute movie is my guess. Yeah, like the last time a movie looked this obviously like a monstrous bomb to me was Fantastic Four. Like, it really feels, like, comparable to that. And just, like, you look at it and you're like, how did you look around at our culture right now, at the movies being made, and say, this is what we want to put out into that, into that landscape? I mean, it's the kind of thing where you know that this, like, whatever the fucking exec at Sony or whoever it is that has this massive heart on for Venom has been trying to make this movie for, like, over ten years. And it feels, it kind of like what, like, Far Cry 5 felt like. Like, this guy has been trying to make this video game for ten years. This guy has been trying to make this movie for ten years. And it feels like it came out ten years ago. Or at least that's based on the trailer. Yeah. It feels like its contemporaries are, like, Ghost Rider and Daredevil. Not, that's a great comparison. Yeah, yeah, not Avengers Civil War or, or Avengers. Infinity War or even like you know the DC movies still look like they're weirdly more modern like this just feels like it came out of this weird portal where old superhero movies fell into it's like here it is it's just like why even release it like honestly why not just take the fucking tax write off it looks like a kind of movie you feel you do because someone tells you you're gonna lose the rights it's like the Roger Corman Fantastic, Fantastic Four, Four movie yes. all of this just looks like different Fantastic Four movies all put together it really does and it's just I, you know, hopefully it bombs hard enough that Sony just has to sell Spider-Man to Marvel, and Marvel just has Tom Holland's Spider-Man on lock. Yeah. That's what I want after Infinity War. Yeah. Anyway. It's just, I, I also, I'm so curious. There's no way he has the spider emblem, right? Like, that can't happen. That doesn't even, it wouldn't even make sense no, for him to have the big, the spider, the big spider on his chest. Because again, I, I think the contract is that, like, they can reference Spider-Man, but they cannot have Tom Holland... As Spider-Man, or really allude to him. So it's like, what is it? It's so weird. Yeah, it's I like just, if you were to. I'm going to make this joke, except this is actually happening. If you were to make a Joker movie sans Batman, but they're doing that. So whatever. Yeah. The 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 world cannot be parodied 
because it is its own worst parody. In yeah. politics, in movies, it's all the worst. We're in the worst timeline. At least we got a good Avengers movie. Yeah. All right. Anyway, um, here's another thing. This will open up uh, a couple of different rants we might be able to do. But, Sean, uh-huh. did you know there's a new Halloween movie coming out? I've, I have heard smoke on the street. I think, what, did Jamie Lee Curtis tweet about it? Yeah, so it's coming out in October, obviously. It's a Halloween yes, it's movie. The whole, yeah. uh, it, I, it would be really funny if it came out on the 4th of July. Yeah, well, I think both of the Rob Zombie ones came out in like early September and were out of theaters by Halloween. So Maybe that's why they're not making a third Rob Zombie Halloween movie. That might you know? be it. Anyway, uh, it, it actually sounds like a kind of an interesting take. It's, it's David Gordon Green and... The other, the guy from Eastbound and Down, I don't remember his name, but anyway, um, are actually they wrote this movie and David Gordon Green is directing it. David Gordon Green is known more as a comedy director. He did like Pineapple Express and stuff, right? Um, uh, but they they really love Halloween and so they like pitched this. John Carpenter is executive producing. He's also writing the music, which is kind of neat. Oh, that's fucking. And, that's I didn't know about that. Yeah. That sounds like the best thing about this yeah. movie. And Jamie Lee Curtis is in it, and the whole idea is that it's a direct sequel to the first movie, pretending nothing else happened. So like, so they're, they're pulling, you know, Halloween as a horror franchise is old enough that they're doing that now. Yes. Like every horror franchise has to go through this at some point. It's Halloween's turn. Yes. But Jamie... Wait, Lee- no, this is the second time they're doing it with Halloween because the fucking Rob Zombie ones basically did that, right? Uh, no, those are just straight remakes. Okay. Because, I mean, they're not straight. They have different stories, but they are a complete Okay, their own continuity. continuity. Okay. Yes. Um, I think the first Rob Zombie movie has like 30 minutes at the beginning of him as a kid. Michael Myers, like before he becomes evil. Sure, it's anyway. like five minutes. Yeah, so anyway. Um, but yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis, though, tweeted out the poster. And now we have the official title of the movie. And now this is where we have to rant for a second. Because, again, the movie sounds kind of interesting. No sure. problem with the movie existing. The movie uh, is... You know, let... let... Let things die. Yeah, sure, just but, like franchises need to end. Halloween has yeah, like two good movies know, in it as but a franchise. It, that doesn't happen, so whatever. But the real problem, Sean, this movie is just called Halloween. Uh-huh. It's just, that's it. As I wrote on Twitter, this is the third Halloween movie just called Halloween, but only the second movie called Halloween in the original Halloween continuity, since the other movie called Halloween is the remake of the original Halloween. Well, this is a sequel to the movie called Halloween. Yes. So we've got this... We had Doom 2016. Mm-hmm. We have God of War this year. It's just God of War again. Got Halloween is just Halloween now. What What is wrong with titles? This is happening all over the place. No one can get it right. People in future generations are going to look back and be like, what is what? None of this makes sense. Ten years, like Sil- Sylvester Stallone was way ahead of the curve on this one because he made Rambo 4 and just called it Rambo. <laughs> meaning there are three movies indirectly called Rambo. Um, none of this makes sense to me, Sean. I don't get it. I can kind. I can accept it for Doom because that was cool. I can get the marketing logic on God of War, even yeah. if it's annoying to try to like go find tips for the game online now uh-huh. because you're you Google it in and they're like, "What are you talking about?" It's like, yeah. I don't fucking know anymore. And now there's a third movie just called Halloween. What is it's? It makes no sense to me. It's it is the consequence of the fucking nostalgia hell that we're in. Of it this is. cycle, this endless cycle. It's like it's like in God of War when they're talking about Jormungand, the the world serpent, and that he wraps around the whole world and bites his own tail. That is the culture we live in. Is this fucking massive serpent eating itself, and we're just stuck in. And the, so your anger that this is the third time they're making a movie just called Halloween. It's not going to stop at this. There's no. no reason to stop making Halloween movies. They're going to keep on making these movies until we're all dead. And there's a 20th movie that's just called fucking Halloween. It's just like, when do we get to the point where we stop titling movies? Like, it's just the franchise title, and we go from there. Or video games. You know, like the new Spider-Man on PS4. Very excited for it. The fact that it is just called Spider-Man. 
That's going to be hell. It's like the fourth game just called Spider-Man. Yes. Like, put a fucking Spider-Man Ascension. I don't care. Just pick something. It's the thing that you really appreciate that Treyarch had the foresight when they made the adaptation of the first Sam Raimi movie to call it Spider-Man the Movie. Yes. That game is called Spider-Man the Movie, even though it's not a movie. It's called Spider-Man the Movie. Spider-Man the Movie the Game. Yes. It's great. You know, just at at some point... It makes no sense. But it's going to happen more because these things are kind of successful, you know? I, I look forward to when we get, you know, the next Halo game, and it's just called Halo. You know, like, we're, we're primed up for a Halo debut at this E3. That might be where we're heading. You, you know, know, next year's Call of Duty, it's just Call of Duty again. Just like, fuck it, we don't need titles, subtitles anymore. Just Call of Duty. We're back Honestly, to with Call of Duty, I might actually just prefer that. That might it, be easier, It's just yes. like, yes, just call it Call of Duty in the, the year, like Madden. We you know, did this... Madden doesn't need a fucking subtitle every no. year. It's just Madden 18. I want Call of Duty 18. Like, just like, do that. Fuck it. Uh, we've got Star Wars Battlefront 1 and 2. We're just completely took the titles. That again. one is particularly annoying because those two, old Battlefront and new Battlefront, are so different, and my feelings about them are so different that it's very frustrating to have to talk about those games on this podcast. Yeah. Again, I, I will write a pass to Doom 2016 and even to God of War 18. I think they could have been more creative with the God of War thing, but I also think there's something that makes it invitational to new players of just, it's just God of War, and they're kind of reclaiming what that means. I actually think there's an interesting, like, semiotic thing going on there. Yeah, even, I haven't gotten as far as you, but even I can kind of feel that going yeah. on in that game. But, anyway, I just, titles need to be better. Yes, I agree. That's all. That's it's, all. It's just, as if, you if, know, as someone who has to write essays and that kind of shit, it's just, you know the fucking massive headache that, like, the two generations ahead of us, if there are two generations ahead of us, are going to have when they have to write their own, like, fucking essays about video games. It's like, which Doom are you talking about? Which Halloween movie are you talking about? There's, like, 500 of these things. It is... It is getting on my nerves, as you can hear. Yeah. If they title the next Avengers movie just Avengers, I'm gonna break something. I don't okay. think they will. I think Marvel knows what they're doing with the fucking yeah. titles. But anyway. Marvel is making too many movies to be able to pull that shit. It's that's like, true. It that's would be true. Too confusing, even for them at yes. that point. All right. Yeah. Let's see. Let's talk about some fun stuff. Um, okay. Star Wars. We have been speculating since the end of Star Wars Rebels, which you loved. Yes. Uh, are they going to do more animation? Because this team, led by Dave Filoni, is very good at it. Mm-hmm. They're doing more animation. Yes, there's someone at Disney is not an idiot. Yes. <laughs> like, let's keep these guys making good stuff. They have announced a new show for Disney XD called Star Wars Resistance. It is again run by Dave Filoni and company, uh, but this is now in an anime style, so more of like, uh, I don't know if it's actually hand-drawn, but like a hand-drawn aesthetic. Um, it is set in the run-up to Force Awakens. Uh, it will have some characters from that, including Poe Dameron and Gwendolyn Christie. Captain Phasma. Yes, there you go. Yes. And, Dome, Dome, yes. she was very uh, titled. And Gwendolyn Christie will be in it. Oscar Isaac will be in it. They've announced the full rest of the cast, but it's kind of cool they got those people for yeah. it. Uh, BB-8 will also be a character. Um, they've—I forget the name of the guy, but they do have like a proper anime director from Japan doing the animation directing. Um, and it sounds awesome. Like this, frankly, is something I think the sequel trilogy needs. Yeah, uh, to some good content out the back. Like the background and the setting. Yeah. yeah, It's about fighter pilots. I think that's cool. It's got a whole new style, so it feels like it's even more kind of inviting to newcomers if you haven't watched the last two animated series. And just like, I like that Star Wars has not been so homogenized that they're cutting off this stuff, you know? Yeah, I'm glad that they're making it. Like, the one thing that's a little bit frustrating to me is, like, obviously there's not going to be... I mean, they can maybe sneak something in, but it seems like there's not going to be any sort of Jedi focus or, like, the Force, I assume, is not going to be a... 
big part of this series because they like really emphasized the kind of like fighter pilot, you know, like like flight jockey kind of ace pilot thing in the pitch for the series. And that's cool. But my favorite part of Star Wars is always going to be kind of like the Jedi side of things. And so I will I will miss that. I'm going to watch the show. Well, of and they're going to make another one after this someday. And they'll, yeah. you know, they'll be able to do their thing probably. Yeah. So, yeah. And I'm, I'm curious to see if they take any of the loose threads from the end of Rebels and, and carry that through in this show at all. Because that would yeah. be interesting. It'll be cool. And I just... I am. I will definitely watch this when it starts, so I don't feel too behind on it. Right. Because I do just. I think it's. I think there's lots of. You can look at like the sequel trilogy stuff two ways. Either the the weird lack of continuity is kind of a dead zone, <laughs> or maybe talented people can go in there and fill in the gaps we have. And I kind of lean towards the latter of like I think you can make lemonade out of this. And I would. I am excited to see this team who is very who is proven at this. Yes. Take their skills kind of to a bigger challenge, frankly, because they don't have as many guardrails. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big, wide open space in a lot of ways that they're they're playing in now. But I think it's going to be fun. So yeah. I'm excited about that. I was going to say we never talked about it. The second solo trailer that came out. Oh yeah. I'm looking forward to this movie now. It's, I think it looks really good. Yeah, it was a good trailer. Like it looks like. Like I, it's it's kind of helping me get expectations in check because it's so clearly pitching itself as just like a fun space heist movie. I'm there for that. That sounds cool. I I, I am cautious because the last time yeah. they had a trailer for a Star Wars movie that pitched it as a heist movie, That's it true. ended up being not a fucking heist movie. That would be so Rogue who One. Knows? Yeah. Who knows? But you know, I really love that cast. It looks fun. You know, we would all maybe prefer a Lando movie starring Donald Glover. Of course, yeah. But you know, it's close enough. And hey, if it does well, we can get our Lando movie. Yeah. You know. Maybe. It depends on how receptive Disney and Lucasfilm are to things. But yeah, yeah. we shall see. Um, all right, let's see. Uh, we, my mind just went to this. We had in this class I'm uh, assistant teaching at CU, we had a whole day on black exploitation, oh, cool. um, which was really cool because I know nothing about that whole movement of film from the 70s. We had an expert um, from out of town teaching us on this who has written books on it and stuff. And we saw two movies, Willie Dynamite and Car Wash. Um, great film. Car Wash, one of the best films of the 70s. You should all see it. Um, but great, great movies and such style and voice to it. And I really want someone to do a black exploitation style movie with Donald Glover as Lando Calrissian. Yeah. Because just the look of him, he looks like he could have stepped off of one of those movies with like the mustache and the yellow suit and everything. Yes. And it's like that, I mean, they're never going to do that with Disney Star Wars, but that would be a really fun way to do it, you know? Yes, it's anyway. a great idea for a movie that will never be made. Yes, I, I'm just saying. All right, anyway, uh, let's talk some video game news, Sean. All right. Speaking of Call of Duty. Uh-huh. This was like, this is two weeks old, but I want to talk about it because it's so weird. I mean, we already talked about the name announcement, that it's called Call of Duty Black Ops I-I-I-I. Yeah. It's just four check marks. So every time you look at it, you're like, is that Call of Duty Black Ops 3 with a typo? Yeah, or every, for me, it's just like every time you look at it, you get a, like a small headache, just like a little tiny little microscopic tiny. headache. Is like, that's why do you do that? That's not how you write four. Yeah, in no language is that how you write four. Assholes. Uh, anyway, yeah, uh, but we got a big kind of um, rumor dump on the game. These are reports uh, substantiated by pretty much like one outlet published it, and then every outlet said, "Yes, we've confirmed this." Yeah, so I'm taking it basically as the truth. Yeah, um, which is that it will not include a single player mode for the first time in Call of Duty's history. There will not be a single player campaign. Um, 
Another one of these reports states that a company named Raven Software has been tasked with creating a Battle Royale mode a la PUBG for the game in place of that campaign, and apparently Treyarch, the developers, scrapped this year's campaign after realizing it would not be ready in time for October. That last piece is actually maybe the most surprising to me, uh-huh. because Treyarch is kind of far and away at this point the most reliable of the Call of Duty developers. In yeah, that, they certainly have been the most stable for the longest. Yeah, because like Infinity Ward hasn't like necessarily missed a cycle, but they have had the complete staff overhaul after yeah. Modern Warfare 2, right? Mm-hmm. And then they had several really like weak releases until they made Infinite Warfare, which is the best Call of Duty game. Yeah. Um, at least going by the single player campaign. At least going by the single player campaign. I didn't I didn't even touch multiplayer in that. Um but yeah, so it, it's just it's weird that Treyarch, you know, with a three-year development span, like maybe there was something a year and a half in, they decided to change direction and then it wouldn't work. And these things happen and I get it. Um, but that was surprising. That they're just deciding, okay, we'll, we'll just go ahead and do it without the campaign. We might have new modes. It's interesting, and it also makes me wonder, is that a genie you can put back in the bottle? Like, can you bring campaigns back after you've done the year of we're going, it's just a multiplayer suite. Will that work, for one? It might, like, that's a really hit and miss thing these days, you know? Yeah. Overwatch has sold 35 million copies and is a huge hit. Star Wars Battlefront 2 is something everyone on Earth hates. Yeah. Like, and I guess that did have a single player campaign. But anyway, like, you know, multiplayer-only games, sometimes they're huge, sometimes they're not. In a long-running series like Call of Duty with existing expectations, I just don't know. So it's a weird thing to me. Uh, them doing a Battle Royale does make yeah. all the sense in the world. I mean, no shit. Like, yeah, no of shit. course you are. Like, you'd be an idiot not to. Like, I would, be, I would be shocked if they weren't trying it. Yeah. I can't wait for Halo 6 Battle Royale. Yes, that's 100% going to be in the next Halo game. Or if it's not, it's just because they couldn't get it to work. It's, yes. not, it's not that they didn't try. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm personally disappointed just in the sense of, like, I haven't played a Call of Duty game for the multiplayer since Advanced Warfare, which was, like, 2014, 2013. I think it was 2014 because it would have been the year after the new consoles. And so it's like, and and even then, like, I've I've always enjoyed the Call of Duty campaigns, like so much so that a couple of years ago, I like picked up a bunch of the old ones that I had missed for like three bucks or whatever used because they were all like three sixty games and nobody gave a shit anymore and just played through the campaigns in an afternoon because it's like, why not the campaign for Black Ops Two? Totally fun! Like that's a good time. Like this is yeah, a yeah. good like six hours of like just like entertaining because you know they're they're all those campaigns are at least competent, if not like a pretty good time. And it's really disappointing to me that it's like just kind of like throwing in the towel and saying, "Yeah, fuck it. We don't. We don't need the campaign." It's also confusing to me. Why are you keeping the Black Ops moniker? What yeah, on right? earth like, does what... that have to do with like the Black Ops thing? Is an ongoing story that in I have not played any of them other than the first, but I know like fans really like those games. Yeah, and it also like Black Ops One is set basically like Vietnam Cold War era right. stuff. Black Ops Two was in the near future that we're probably like almost there now in our actual reality. Just like I don't think we're going to have giant robots and shit they had in Black Ops Two, so they no. might have been slightly off the mark. Um, and then Black Ops Three, I think, is even—I've never played that one, but I think that's even further future because it's got like full-on robot people and stuff like that in it. And so it's not like you know—I know that there's like connective tissue between them, and there's pretty strong connective tissue between Black Ops One and Two. From what I've heard, there's not that much between Two and Three, but it's not like there's a strong like setting thing or anything like that that identifies this is what Black Ops is. Yeah, why not just call it? Call of Duty Battle Royale or something, like, if that's what you're doing. I mean, it's a weird thing to keep Black Ops and not keep the Black Ops stuff. Yeah. Tinfoil hat time. Okay. Sean. Yes. This is my favorite time. This is unsubstantiated, but I actually think I I might be onto something. Okay. So, Black Ops 2, Future, 3, Further Future, 4 would have probably gone even further future, right? Probably, yeah. Do you think after Infinite Warfare they clamp down on that? 
because that game was a uh, financial kind of disaster for them. It uh, critically was kind of all over the map because I think people didn't know what to make of it. We think it's one of the best FPS campaigns ever made. Yeah. But it was understandably kind of controversial because it went so off the map for what Call of Duty is. And they haven't, you know, they, they immediately went fucking World War II. Like, they went hard the other yeah. direction. They, they are not doing any more advanced warfare. Like, it feels like something reactive happened. And I do wonder if the Treyarch couldn't make it work is that at some point they said, you can't make it future anymore. They tried something else and they realized we just can't finish this. Yeah. I'm going to be really fascinated at E3 when they do like their whole, because usually they do like their big like reveal like a week before E3 and then they yeah. get like an extra trailer on like Sony stage or something like that. I am really curious to see if there's any of like the wall running stuff or the boost packs that was in like Black Ops 3 and, and, and uh, Infinite Warfare had a lot of that stuff. I'm curious to see if they take any of that forward or if they're like, nope, back to basics. Like, yeah. you know, you run around on the ground and you shoot people and, like, maybe you have, like, a dive if you sprint and, and crouch at the same time, you know? But that's, I, like, as far as it goes. Because I think the truth is that Call of Duty is probably, at this point, kind of a broken brand. It kind of means nothing in terms of, like... Because it's been so many things. Yeah. And it went so far afield. And then the fans just kind of split in all these directions and no one can agree on what it is. And World War II, I think, sold well but had very kind of tepid reaction because I think no one really cared anymore. For me, like, World War II, what I kind of got the sense of, like, the reception around that game was, like, it was that, like, we're playing to our base. Like, we're going to, like, these are the Call of Duty people and we bled a bunch of Call of Duty people off of Infinite Warfare because, like, they just hated the, anything that had to do with space even though it's like hey going to space is fucking awesome and it was fucking awesome in that game you idiots like play that campaign it's amazing and the space stuff is one of the best parts about it um, but yeah like the traditional Call of Duty people just could not accept that at all and said like fuck that shit and so they're like no we need to like staunch the bleeding get as many of our like core guys back in and like into the like Call of Duty and then say like fuck it like that was kind of the, the sense I got was everybody that was like kind of into Call of Duty was like okay I'm done like for me it's like okay I'm off like everything I saw about that game after the reveal was like doesn't feel like you're making the game I want yeah. This kind of feels like you're going backwards and not like doing World War II in a way that was interesting, like Call of Duty 2 did it way back in the day. It's just like, no, like you're just making Call of Duty Call of Duty. And I, I'm guessing that that's what happens to Call of Duty is kind of what we're talking about with the name thing. It just becomes Call of Duty, whether they literally do the naming thing or not. I think it's just like, this is just Call of Duty. They're not going to make like the big plays or anything anymore. And I also think it's a shrinking thing. Like, I don't yeah. think Call of Duty gets big again. Like, I don't think it balloons back to modern warfare size. No. I think it like stabilizes and will be like very profitable for Activision for a while, but it yeah. will not like, it, I think it's, it's well past its time for being this big like cultural marker, you know? Yeah. It's a weird thing. Yeah. All right. Um, let's see. Nintendo had a bunch of news this week. Um, they had an earnings call where they revealed that Tatsumi Kimishima, who had been Nintendo's president since the death of Satoru Iwata in 2015, he is retiring as Nintendo's president. Um, he is 68 years old and was really only ever meant to be an interim president yeah. Like while they waited to figure out who should be their next long-term president. So this is not because he did a bad job. Obviously, he did a very good job shepherding in the era of the Switch, yeah. as we'll talk about in a second. But he has been replaced by 46-year-old Shuntaro Furukawa. Furukawa has been with Nintendo since 1994. He's been the outside director of the Pokemon Company. Uh, he's been the managing executive director of Nintendo and was heavily involved in the selling and marketing of the Nintendo Switch. Um, I also saw that Nintendo of Europe's uh, president stepped down. So there's a lot of corporate kind of shifting, but it feels like what they're trying to do is like, 
all right, we're successful again. Let's get a long-term team in place. Because Iwata's death, I think, really shook the company. Because yeah. it was sudden. Uh, he'd been there forever. They were planning new things at the time. They were in the middle of the Wii U phase. They were bleeding money. You know, now they've stabilized. Um, they've got new people on board. Uh, notably, like the, the new guy, um, Furukawa, is 46 years old, as I yeah. said. So he's a very young guy to be running Nintendo and presumably could be there a long time. Um, but when I say Nintendo has stabilized... Here's what I mean. Right, yeah. More sales numbers for Switch. Now that we're in April, so it's been a year and a month since the Switch launched. So in its first year of sales, the Nintendo Switch sold 18 million units worldwide. Yeah. That's 4 million more than the Wii U ever sold. And that is 3 million more than Nintendo's own lofty projections of 15 million units, which I remember pretty much everyone on Earth laughing at when they said they were going to sell that many. And they did. Uh, Super Mario Odyssey is the best-selling Switch game with 10.5 million sales, which is nuts. Breath of the Wild is now the best-selling Zelda game ever with 8.5 million sales on Switch and another million over on Wii U. And Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, notably, has completely outsold its Wii U version 9.5 to 8 million. Yep. So... Yes, the Nintendo Switch is a really big hit, and I continue to just, every time I see those numbers, think in my mind the question, what will the video game industry look like in a couple of years with this being the runaway hit it is? Yeah. Because the Wii was a runaway hit, and in a couple of years we had the Kinect and the Move and all that stupid shit. Yeah. Um, but the Switch also seems like a much more, like, I don't know, repeatable phenomenon. It seems like something that Nintendo is having a better, an easier time keeping up the momentum on. Well, because it's like the thing with the Wii was it was a great gimmick with like a couple of really good games early on that sold it, notably Wii Sports. And then right. like after that, even Nintendo seemed to kind of lose interest in using, doing much with that other than like yeah. Skyward Sword or something. So the Nintendo Switch, all you need to do is make good games. And exactly. you can put pretty much anything on it. Yeah. Like not a God of War or something, but most everything else. Yeah. So I'm just very curious. I'm still curious how third parties um, and outside developers and stuff are going to work on getting their stuff onto the system. Because I do think, especially in a world where the Xbox One is really an afterthought. And so it's really the two players are PS4 and Switch. What happens with third-party development? Yeah. I think it's an open question, you know? Because for now, you've got like 80 million PS4s in the wild. You're fine. But that Switch number rises exponentially. You're losing more and more sales the more you don't get your stuff out on there. Yeah. And people are receptive. You know, Wolfenstein 2 just got its release date. It's coming out June on the Switch. I fucking love that a Wolfenstein game is on a Nintendo platform, but whatever. Particularly that Wolfenstein yeah. game. Like, it's, you know, it's not kid-friendly. That is a hard M. Yep. Dark Souls uh, actually got delayed last week, but it is coming to Switch. It's just going to take an extra month or something, they said. Um, so, yeah, it's just, it's very interesting. Those numbers are insane. Um, I actually did look up. Everyone said Breath of the Wild is the highest-selling Zelda game. If you combine the, the 3DS remake of Ocarina of Time with its N64 version, it is still the highest-selling at, like, 13 million, but Breath of the Wild will get there. Right. And that's kind of nuts that Zelda would be breaking its own sales records at this point, you know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, all of it is kind of amazing to me, um, especially coming out of the Wii U. Because that's stark to realize the Wii U oh, sold yeah. 13 million lifetime and it's five million past that you know yeah it, it, it definitely like puts the wii u, like the wii u in a specific light you know i mean this would be like if after the dreamcast sega put out the ps2 
Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's just, it's metaphor. insane, you know? Yeah. Instead of being beaten into the ground by the PS2. It, yeah, and just sort of giving up and being like, oh, okay, we'll just make games for you guys, whatever. We'll make pretty shitty games for you yeah. guys. There'll be a couple of good ones, I don't know. Eventually we'll get somebody else to make a good Sonic game for us. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, any other thoughts on all the Nintendo stuff? Yeah, it's very successful. I saw my first Nintendo Switch like on the train a couple of weeks ago. Oh, nice! I was like, oh yeah, yeah, there's some playing the Switch. When I uh, when I am in line for movies, like you know, every once in a while there's a movie that's big enough you have to line up for. I do persistently see like three or four people with Switches in mm-hmm. line. And uh, at CU, where I'm I'm doing this assistant teaching, there are uh, enough people with Switches that I notice them, which is kind of a cool thing. Yeah. But, yeah. Alright, um, last thing here is just Shadow of the Tomb Raider finally got its trailer, got a little gameplay demo, looks cool, we still don't really know anything about it. Yes, the the thing about it that is hilarious to me is that the trailer was leaked like a couple of days. I don't know if it was when they were going to originally launch it or if they had to launch it early or however that situation works out. Maybe they leaked it on purpose, who knows. That's the leakiest game ever. Yeah, because if, for those who don't remember, we knew about Shadow of the Tomb Raider like two years ago. When somebody took like a picture of it on someone else's laptop on like a subway train or something, it's like you could just see like a PowerPoint presentation with Shadow of the Tomb Raider on it, and I was like, "Is this fake? Is this real?" It's like it's real. They didn't change the title. They didn't change anything. It's just like, it, yeah, this is the most leaked game I think I've ever seen. Yep, it does look like they are leaning very hard into the darkness of it, and that it's about yeah. Lara Croft, like. Dealing with like I kill a lot of people And I raid a lot of tombs And I don't We'll see if that will work I I, I really do like The first two Tomb Raider games A lot uh, I am not in the camp That thinks like They are better than Uncharted I think they are I think Uncharted is Notably better than those games um, because think, But they're kind of Going for different things You know it, In some areas But like I, You know they, they definitely are not At the level of Naughty Dog In terms of like Putting characterization, story, oh, yeah. and gameplay in, into that perfect blend. And that would be the next step I'd like to see them take. And maybe this will be it. I will say, hearing Camilla Luddington's voice again as Lara just made me realize, oh, I've missed that. She's really good. I yeah. want to hear Lara Croft again. Um, you know, I do think, like, uh, Rise of the Tomb Raider maybe got a little too into the weeds with some of the, like, evil organization stuff for my tastes. And it looks like that's going to be a heavy thing here. But. I'm optimistic. It, it is one of those games coming out in September, which is the new November, because yeah. Red Dead is coming out in November. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm definitely looking forward to yeah. it. I will see if I will be able to play Rise of the Tomb Raider before then. I don't know. I don't it's know not if, that long a game. You yeah, can do it. But like, I know that I won't be able to throw the pick into a thing and then summon it back with magic. And it's like, I don't know if I can go back and play a video game where you can't do that, Jonathan. Alright, you want to talk about God of War? I want to talk about God of War. God of War is so fucking good. It's so fucking good, Jonathan. Holy shit. What you are referencing there, Sean, is that... Is the single greatest game mechanic in the history of video games ever. I think the moment when this game... Okay, there's a fight early on in the game that blew my mind up. You know, and you know what it is if you've played it. But the thing that really blew my mind is when I realized... Not only can you throw the Leviathan Axe and call it back to you... And that's cool enough, right? Yes. But that, you can, you know, you don't even have to be that good at it. But with a decent amount of forethought, you can throw it and pull it back through enemies Mm -hmm. and do extra damage that way. Or, if an enemy has, like, say, a shield or they're in an inopportune place, you could chuck it the right way, realign yourself, and pull it back and just pull it through their back. And feel like you are Chris Hemsworth in a Marvel movie, except you're kind of even cooler because you're fucking Kratos. Yeah, you're Kratos, and you're not just, like... Hurting somebody or something It's like you're just fucking murdering these Draugr It's just you're ripping them to pieces 
It's or you can do what one of the things I like to do is the like mega two hand overhead like throw stick someone in like because it's a it's not just an axe it's a magic ice axe yes. so you freeze them in place and you go and like beat the shit out of everyone else with your bare hands and then summon it back and chop them in half with it which I've done a lot yes yeah. let's start with the combat I mean <laughs> yeah. just because like. There are many things to like about God of War. It's one of those games that I think pretty much everything it tries to do, it does exceptionally well. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Um, and it does a lot of different things, uh-huh. right? Uh, but the combat is amazing, especially for me, because I don't get into combat systems in games all that much in terms of, like, I just don't... It's not my favorite thing. I don't think about it. Like, you know, if a game like Zelda Breath of the Wild doesn't have the most in-depth combat system in the world, it, it doesn't even really register with me. It's right. not something I care about. But it's kind of like food, you know? If you just eat a cheeseburger, sometimes you don't really think about it. But then you eat, like, the best steak in the world, you're still going to notice the difference. Yeah. God of War is that kind of thing of, like, about five hours into the game, I realized, oh, this is probably the best combat I've ever played in a third-person game. Yeah. Because it is very accessible. Like, you can get the particulars of it really quick. Of You throw your axe, you throw it back, you fight, you got heavy attacks, light attacks, you got your shield, those sorts of things, right? Yeah. But the depth to it is staggering. Without being overwhelming either. Like, it yeah. is excessively complicated and nuanced and strategic. And I think the game paces its combat very well. And, like, early on I remember being frustrated by a boss that was taking me too long. And the boss kind of made me get good at it. Yeah. And then from then on out, I've had a thing where if I see a purple enemy that I really shouldn't be fighting yet, I get excited. Yes. Because it's really fun to spend half an hour trying to beat this guy. 100%. I have been doing... You know me, Jonathan. I like to play games on hard mode. So I've been playing this on hard, and it is so fucking fun. And I think it's one of the reasons why, because I've heard the, like, complaints about the slow start a lot. And I think one of the reasons why I didn't really feel that at all is because playing it on hard, you are forced immediately to, like, get pretty good at the combat, or you will just get fucking, like, just minced apart. I probably died, like, I don't know, six or seven times in, like, the first fight, because it's just like, these things will fuck you up. But it is just some of the most satisfying combat I've ever played in any game. It's, it's just absurdly excellent. Um, because it is just like the basics of it are so solid. Like the presentation of it, the sound design in this game is just the best. It's just the best. It's because it's, I've never heard sound design be over the top in the way that the sound design in this game is over the top. But it's perfect. Like realistic over the top, though. Yes. It's, it's, it's the actual sounds these over the top things would make. Yeah, because you, yeah, you're the god of war. You're Kratos. You're, you are unbelievably strong. You are ripping these things apart with your bare hand. You're hurtling this massive axe like over your head at tremendous speeds. And every little bit of sound design, every little bit of animation, every little visual effect with like... They do some stuff with the slowdown that is just the coolest shit... And so all that's just like the basic meat and potato combat. Like when I got into that first fight and I did the heavy attack where you and you launch them up in the air and then you can hit them multiple times near in the air and like they fucking got it. They somehow found a way to take the really heavy, meaty, deliberate combat style of a Dark Souls game, which is like the the you know what you go to those games for and what they kind of like pioneered was that really slow deliberate melee combat that like a lot of your attacks have a big wind up and you have to be read like it has a sort of a tactical feel to it because if you just go in and start mashing you're going to get your ass kicked because you can't get any of your moves off that quickly and it takes that but it also mixes it with the character action combat stuff that was in God of War like a big thing in the old God of War games was launching a bunch of dudes in the air and smacking them around while they're flying like flailing in the air because they can't attack you when they're stunned up in the 
the air, and they take that and they mix it with the Dark Souls thing. So you just smack them up to the air, and then if you do the second heavy combat attack, you smack them back into the ground, and if you do two lights, you do a little attack, and then a spin attack and send them flying, and they go... And there's several, obviously, attacks you can do, and some that you unlock that send the enemy flying when you hit them. Like, the best one is the shield parry light attack, where you just bash them in the face with the shield, and they go flying across the fucking combat arena, smashing through rocks, smashing through trees. Like, this is the kind of game where you understand the value of having something like a PS4, where it's like, so much of the environment is destructible, and crunches and smashes in these really satisfying ways. And, And so all that presentation stuff is perfect but then as you were saying it is the the layers that they put on top of the really basic simple combat you start with which is everything you get in the skill tree and the runic attacks which are such a smart addition of a really smart way to sort of like give you this interesting sense of progression and reward for exploration that a lot of the rewards you get are not just like oh i have like five more strength it's oh i can equip this new attack that I can do. And that's the thing that feels Diablo-esque to me, is like all like the whole loot system. It's not that like Diablo where you're getting a hundred pieces of loot. Right. But you're constantly getting stuff. It's got different levels. And what you put on you has tangible effects on what you do, which is one of the things I love about Diablo, which is that if you get something cool and new, you're going to notice the difference because it has all these cool effects that you can use in combat. And it's going to change the way that you play the game because it's like, oh, this makes this skill that much better, so I'm going to adjust my play style to adapt to that. Exactly. But I've never seen that done like this in in this kind of combat game because Diablo is that isometric thing where... It's obviously much easier for the developers to put in all those different things because there's not such complexity to the animations in the environment. Uh, And obviously God of War doesn't have that much stuff. But what it does have, it does have that feel of like getting a new power and realizing how you're going to orient your play style around to it really is invigorating. And when you pick something up, it doesn't feel like, you know, junk that you're getting. You want to analyze it and you might not use it, but you want to like think about it and put that in there. And that's a whole side of the game that is really fun. And as you say, helps reward you for exploration. Yeah. And it's just the... Like, I can't get over how just, like, kinesthetically and aesthetically satisfying the combat is to just engage with it. Oh, like, yeah. it, to the point where it's like, it's even when you're not in combat, I'm just throwing that axe into walls, I'm just chucking it into the fucking ocean, well, and just watching it fly back to me. And they've done a really good job of integrating all that with the puzzles in the environment, yeah. right? Which, as the game goes on, it does more and more and more of that, which is great. Um, but yeah, I. This game, like, the, we were talking about the combat and how much, you know, work is put into it. And that, you know, you said, like, this is the value of a PS4, right? Yeah. Because, I, you know, you know, I love my Nintendo Switch and all that stuff. And I don't usually care all that much about the graphical side of things. But I'd be the first to admit, you obviously couldn't make this game for anything less powerful than a PS4. And you want that because this game offers a certain kind of immersion and escapism to it. Yeah. And really, I think, you know, the cover of this game... Should be the director Corey Barlog diving into a money vault, Mark Sony on it, <laughs> yeah. like he Scrooge McDuck, because that's what this game is. Is moment one to I assume the end is you looking at it, and it really should just be say on screen, Sony has a fuck ton of money right now. Yeah, because good God, this looks like the most expensive video game ever made. Yeah, and it is the thing that I love so much about it is we you just don't get this fidelity of game like. In this genre anymore, like no. we, you know, it's always stuff that's like I love Uncharted to death and that kind of stuff. But it typically we get this much more like realistic kind of thing. Even Horizon Zero Dawn, which is sort of sci-fi fantasy in some ways, 
you know, it, it, it obviously it has like cool like giant robot monsters in it, but it still feels grounded in this very specific way. And God of War just feels like it has come out of this like lineage of action adventure games that are very specific, very directed, but obviously has like a certain openness to it. Like an Ocarina of Time is probably the closest like analog I can come for the structure of the game. But it does it like is able to focus its like efforts in the right ways where it needs to be and to do it on this like just epic incredible fantasy setting so that you have Jormungandr the the world serpent like hovering over and just like right in your face or you have you know you fight giant fucking dragons and it's like the most incredible thing ever or you fight you know early on you fight another god this sort of like this like mic drop moment of like this is where the game is going <laughs> like this yeah. is like this is the upper scale of like what you're approaching and when you fight or just walking around the world yeah. and like this world feels a hundred percent real a hundred percent tangible everything on screen looks like you could reach out and touch it but it's a fantasy world yes. it feels like you have stepped into a fantasy or into mythology and i think you're completely right on that and the other thing is the openness like you know I love Uncharted and I love the, and all the stuff Naughty Dog does. Um, and I don't mind in the slightest when I'm playing those that those are very linear games, right? Yeah. But there is something to be said for like, what if you took a Naughty Dog game and made it kind of open world and like your you know penchant for exploration was much more unbound now? That's yeah. kind of what God of War is. But in its like attention to detail and its graphical style and everything, it kind of feels like if Nintendo had taken a really different path after the N64 and uh-huh. like decided we're making powerful consoles and we're going adult and all this stuff, it feels like 20 years later this is what they would have made. Yeah. Like just in terms of how densely detailed everything is, how tightly knit its systems are, how polished the entire game is, you know, this... This is like an unusually polished and detailed game for for a Western developer, frankly. Yeah. You know, and that's not to put down other developers, just like on the scale it's operating on, you don't see this much, right? Yeah. And it's the kind of thing where, it's one of the things I love about what Sony has done with a lot of its first party games is like the sheer fucking confidence they have in their first party developers of, you know, like reviews for this game are out like a week before it dropped. Because Sony just has the confidence to say like, Fuck it, man. Like, it's we just, know this is a great game. Yeah, like, we know that this game is amazing. We know it's good. Like, and it feels like they gave, because, like, having reviews out a week ahead of the dr- dropping the game means that, like, the game was done proportionally ahead of the schedule then as well to give to reviewers. And so it's like, it feels like this game just got all the time it needed to be made. It feels like, you know, I'm sure that the developers had to do a lot of crunch and everything. Like, I don't want to, you know, not address that. But it does feel like they, you know, it does not feel like it's not fucking Mass Effect Andromeda or something where it's like the game just sort of like crash lands into its launch and then like has to like sort of skid while like people are like wiping it down with fire extinguishers or something, which just feels like maybe like half of every modern AAA release kind of has that feel to it. This feels perfectly polished. It feels like it's sub. Well, they keep on patching it like every single day. That is the weird thing, and I don't, I don't really see what they're patching. <laughs> it's just like, they're like every patch note just says like ah, optimization and improvements. I think the first one, I I quit the game and let it update, and then when I realized they were doing it every fucking day, I've kind of just been letting them pile up. Yeah, and like when I get to certain points in the story where I feel like I'm okay shutting the game down, then I will let them all install. But it's been yeah. a weird thing. It's like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with the game. It's fine. Yeah, I'm sure that's like, it's another thing that feels like this dedication to the game. Of oh, like, yeah. It's like, oh, cool. Like, they're, like, I'm sure there must be some, like, you know, glitch related to fighting this monster in this way yeah, or yeah. something that they, they're patching out. No, it's great. Yeah. And, yeah, there's just, Sony really has, uh, has that confidence in their own teams, which is so inspiring. You know, like, God of War, 
we we learned about it like two years ago, right? Yeah, I think it was 2016, yeah. But they also, like, they didn't overshow it. I feel like they were very careful in what they decided to show. And they never announced a release window until they were good and ready to, you know? So it yeah. didn't, they didn't feel like they were teasing us with it. Um, and part of that also is that, and I want to hear your reaction on this too, Sean, because I had no idea what this game actually was until I started playing it. Yeah. Like, or until, I guess, I read some of the reviews. I think you and I both assumed this was going to be like a 15-hour linear game. Yeah. It's not. It's like 60 fucking hours if you put in all the stuff you want to do. And it is... Um, you, know, you can debate, is it open world? Is it more like an Ocarina of Times, you know, open, like, mainland or something? But it is a big open game, you yes. know? Yeah, and there's a lot of room to explore, and there are a bunch of side quests and, like, weird little, like, puzzle unlockables and yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I had no idea that was in the game. And when I... I think when the game clicked for me fully was when you get to the lake of nine and you realize and then the game pushes you here because atreus will tell you this you know you can go explore and kratos doesn't want to explore but atreus does yeah. and so he relents and like, okay fine boy we yes. will go help those ghosts fine yes and you start to realize how much is out there how little of it is required how much of it is optional and yet how essential everything you find feels. Yeah. This is, to me, right on par with The Witcher 3 in terms of a game that much of it is optional, but everything you do feels essential, no matter how much or how little. Yeah. And I think there are very few games you can say that about. Um, I think Witcher 3 for this generation is always going to be like the, the signpost for that, for what it did with side quests. But like this game, when you do a side quest, it feels like there is character development or there is lore development or it's just fucking fun, you know, like, and, and you should go explore and poke around this world because that's the pace at which this game works best. And, you know, from what I know of God of War, looking at like videos of the first three games, I would not call those slow paced games. Maybe I'm yeah. wrong on that. But like, yeah. this is a game that you want to let it breathe and there's a magic to that. Yeah, because the interesting thing is, I think God of War 1 and 2 have a lot of this in it. Like, okay. So it was something that I wasn't necessarily surprised when I saw that this God of War had those elements. Because particularly God of War 1 always felt to me like it was like this weird sort of like action-focused pseudo-sequel to Ocarina of Time. Like it has a lot of that, that puzzle stuff is in there. I mean, like, because basically God of War 1 is split into two halves, and the second half is one, basically the equivalent of a gigantic temple from Zelda. Like, with, like, all these puzzles, and it wraps in on itself, and a lot of that level design stuff. God of War 3 gets away from a lot of that, and it's that's a lot more linear and focused. But yeah, I think the thing with this God of War that is so interesting to me is that stuff of I can see, as someone who played the, those three God of War games, obviously they made Ascension, that this is a game that everybody forgets about, but I forget about every time I talk about it. They also made, God. I think, 53 PSP games. There's at least two. Okay. I know I technically have two because I know I got that God of War trilogy thing to play on PS3. It like came with downloads for those. I'm like, I never played these. Um, but yeah, so, but anyways, with this God of War... It has a lot of those same inspirations, and it definitely feels like it has a lot of, like, the spirit and heart of, like, God of War 1 and 2, which are the two, like, really great God of War games. God of War 2 being the other one that Cory Barlog directed, and he worked heavily. He was, like, one of the leads on God of War 1. So it has a lot of that DNA and spirit and those influences in it, but it has pushed them so far ahead of where they were in, like, 2006 or whenever God of War 2 came out that it's kind of mind-boggling like like it's sort of like almost hurts to look at it because it feels like again this game that kind of came out of that older tradition of action adventure games but then has taken so much influence of everything that happened in this long stretch of time between those two these two places and one of the things i think i love about god of war so much that makes that stuff 
the side stuff so satisfying to explore. And the thing that makes it feel very different from what a lot of modern games feel like is that there is a certain degree of uniqueness to it. So much of modern game design, because modern games lean so heavily on the open world stuff, leans on, like, cookie-cutter game design. Which is... And, like, every game... Like, God of War has some of this, obviously. Like, it's like, you know... There are a bunch of Odin's Ravens, and not every single one of the, like, Norn chest puzzles are completely unique. There's a lot of those are, like, certain modulations of them and, and different configurations of it. But still, it's not like, you know, Breath of the Wild has some of this of where, like, you know, every single one of the stables in Breath of the Wild is the exact same stable. Which is fine, because it's a big open world game. Or, like, Witcher 3 has a bunch of that kind of stuff in it also. Whereas God of War, it's like every piece of armor you get is you like a different piece of armor there's a very like as far as i can tell a very finite number of armor in the game you could easily have all of it like there's a finite number of runic attacks and they're always in the same place there's just like there's a bunch of different versions of those norn chests there's like a handful of different side quests but all the different side quests feel completely different and all the areas feel different and there's a tremendous number of different enemy types in the game and so it has this certain uniqueness to it that I feel like when I'm exploring, which is something I, like, I spent like the past three hours in the game exploring the main hub area because they start like unlocking new areas for you to go as you go across the story. I just keep, keep on feeling like I'm encountering stuff that's like, I've never seen this. Like I encountered a puzzle thing with like zip lines just exploring a random area. Found that like, the other day, yeah. I've never seen like nowhere else. Like this is not in the main part of the game. Like I've never seen this anywhere else in this game. It's like I've only used a zip line like twice and I just stumbled upon this little puzzle type that I was like, oh, like fuck, okay, I guess I have to do this. Like that's an element of the game that just feels so satisfying to me that I just am not encountering like the same structures, the same combat encounters, the same setup over and over again. I feel like as I progress through the game, I keep on encountering new unique stuff. I think God of War, this one, is emblematic of a maturity that video gaming has found in this generation of consoles. Um, Not that video gaming has not had maturity, obviously, at different points. Um, Certainly, like, I think you go to, like, the late 16-bit era or something. There's a lot of, like, very... I think game development had reached kind of a certain pinnacle then. But certainly you get to, like, Western development in the 2000s, from which the original God of War comes from, right? And you have, like, a lot of young guys... Doing a lot of kind of brash, crazy work. And, you know, this is when you get the famous, like, hyper-violence of video games. and which, hyper- Part of which that God of War is 100% so part of, yeah. Hypersexuality of video games, which God of War is... Yep. Yep. I'm very glad that they did not try to keep up the sex minigame thing for this one. It was always weird. I don't know how that would work in this game, but yeah. yes. Um, and, it, you know, you had a lot of those sorts of things. And it really does feel like this generation... Not only have, I think, stories and character and, like, representations of different kinds of people taken a quantum leap forward, especially in Western development, I think, of how you represent those things and how you tell stories and how you use violence and sexuality, you know, not just for shock or something. Uh, You know, and God of War is emblematic of this in that it is literally about Kratos being older, having a son, just as a lot of game developers like Corey Barlog have sons and daughters yeah. now and are this is on their minds and like the industry is kind of growing up alongside them but i also just think game design itself has such a maturity to it in in terms of particularly open world design now yeah. because if you are a long time listener to this podcast you have probably heard one of my rants on open world games from like 
the end of the last generation into the beginning of this one. Yeah. Like, I think Grand Theft Auto V is most emblematic of the game that broke my fucking spirit on that or kind of game. the one I think of is Watch Dogs 1. Watch Dogs 1, definitely, yeah. too. But, like, the collectathon, you know, endless icons on the map, super fucking long campaigns, whether or not that is justified. Yeah, a campaign that feels like they built the map and then, like, asked some poor asshole just, like, how do you make a story that takes you to everywhere on this gigantic map it's like I don't know so I have to write like five villains that's basically what Far Cry 3 was it's like oh shit we killed this villain we need another villain okay kill this guy too okay we need like there's like five villains in that game and I really just reached a breaking point with that and I think this generation Witcher 3 was the first huge breakthrough on this I think but there have been a bunch and these were all like simultaneously developed so I don't know how much it you know cross pollination there is like god of war was probably early enough in its development that i think witcher 3 probably inspired i think yeah i think any game that came out like late last year this year is 100 percent influenced by witcher 3 um but like you know these games like witcher 3 breath of the wild god of war uh gravity rush 2 i'd frankly throw in here um I'm, i'm sure i'm forgetting some but games where you can have a big world and you can have a big story But there is so much more player motivation in how you experience that, in what you invite the player to do, rather than laying out, here are 20 icons on the map for missions, and you're going to have to complete every single fucking one of these before you can meet the big bad or something, a la Grand Theft Auto 4, right? Yeah. What if Grand Theft Auto 4 back in the day had been structured in such a way where you don't have to go to every nook and cranny of Liberty City, but if you do, maybe you'll meet a cool character like Little Jacob or something. And it's not a required thing, but it's just another strand of it. And that just, even if you had all the same content, but you just shifted how you present it to the player, it would feel like such a more engaging game. And I think games these days have gotten so good at that. And God of War is really emblematic of this because you could sail right through this game and miss a lot of stuff. And you'd probably still enjoy it. But the more you slow down and you, you poke around, it really does reward exploration. It asks for that exploration. It wants you to breathe in the game with it. And that requires a level of trust in players yeah. and maturity of the audience, too, to work. And I just think it's so cool that that has been one of the dominant trends in video gaming this generation. And that is such a different dominant trend than a hundred different shooters. Uh-huh. Or, like... How is infi- or how is uh, Activision going to piss us off with a really uh, bad taste Call of Duty violence thing this year? You know, mm-hmm. which is what we had several years after Modern Warfare Two, right? Yeah. So this is just I, I just think like I look at God of War and I think God damn this industry is healthy and innovative artistically. I know these are just like business practice things to get into, yes, yeah. but you know what I mean. Like artistically, like wow, we are in a very special place. Absolutely, yeah. And it's just, yeah, every every second I play God of War, I'm just constantly just sort of amazed. It is so finely tuned. It is so honed. And it's something that's like, I just, it is that, like, just the feel of it. It's just that, like, the little touches of, like, the animation of how he grabs the axe or the way the axe, like, sort of, like, pops up a bit before it goes flying out of whatever it's stuck in. Or I think my favorite thing to do in the game in terms of, like, the combat and the feel and, like, just the way the game, like, sort of presents things to you is my two go-to runic attacks are for the light one. It's the shield charge where it goes... Because every time you do one of the runic attacks, which is like a special move, it slows down for a little bit and kind of like zooms in a little bit on Kratos while he does something to sort of charge it up. And for the shield bash, it's so good. He like taps the shield with his axe and makes this noise and then he charges and smashes people. And then my uh, heavy runic attack is the one where you like spin the axe around and slam it into the ground. 
And it's one of the, it's something that I also really loved about Nier Automata, it's something this game also does incredibly well, is chaining animations together from all these different configurations of moves. So it's incredibly smooth to go to this twang, like shield charge, bash this guy, then take the axe, spin it around in your back and smash into the ground and cause a giant ice explosion. And, and like that stuff is so satisfying. It's presented so well. And just every little touch of the little camera moves it does, the little sound effects it'll put on things, like the the extra little time that Kratos twirls the axe that doesn't need to, but it's just because it's fucking cool. Like, all of that stuff goes such a long way to making the game feel as perfect as it is, and it has little tiny touches like that in every single facet of it. Yes. Uh, two more things we should talk about before we move on. Yeah. First off, the graphics. Uh-huh. Can, I have had this feeling pretty frequently playing this game where I look at it and I can't believe what I'm seeing. Yeah. And we are in an age of such consistent casual magic from lots of different forms of media, TV, movies, games, what have you, but particularly from video games in that we are deep into the heart of a generation that still seemingly has a lot of untapped potential, you know, in terms of the power of these systems. And God of War is just one of those games that's like, I can't believe, I can't believe what I'm looking at. Yeah. You know? Um... I am also lucky enough, I'm playing the game on a PS4 Pro. Nice. And this is a long story, but my you have heard me bitch off and on on Twitter in this podcast that my old PS4 has just been dying a slow death. Yeah. And I don't know what happened to it, because it's not that old, but time goes by faster than I guess we all realize. Yeah. And like, I think I knew it was on its last legs when I went to play, so... Saturday, so when this game came out, so Friday, dealing with an emergency, didn't even pick the game up from Best Buy. Saturday, I picked the game up, still dealing with emergency, but Saturday night, I'm very exhausted and emotionally worn down, but I'm like, maybe I'll try God of War tonight. Put it in, there's an update. It's only a gigabyte, but it says two hours to download, because the internet on my old PS4 is so bad. And I'm like, well, you have fun with that PS4, I'm going to watch some (laughs) Yu-Gi-Oh! And that's what I did. And I, I think that was the... Three-parter where Yugi fights the magician who tries to play a game from Saw with the buzz saws. <laughs> yeah, anyway, okay, yeah, I remember that. Not relevant to the story, but it's a funny episode. Yeah. Um, then the next morning, I try to go play God of War, and I try to launch it, and it says, okay, we've downloaded the, the, applica- the update. We have to copy the update now, though. And it starts to do the copying thing, like 1%, 2%. This is 3%. something that should happen about half of a second, like yes. on my PS4. It's just like yeah. that's something that like I don't even usually register that that screen comes up because it's gone immediately. Because yes. all it is is like copying that data like like onto that area of the hard drive. Right? right. It's like not even copying it to something else. It's moving it within the same hard drive. Yes. And actually, this was Sunday night because this is when I actually did start the game. But it took so long. I remember I was on my phone for about twenty minutes watching this happen, and I probably did a tweet storm bitching about this at that point. Yeah. Because my PS4 is just, it is dying molasses. And so, I, but finally it launches. I'm able to start playing the game. Game is beautiful no matter what PS4 you're playing it on, right? You're, yes. You have a base PS4. Yes, so it's awesome. It looks yeah. amazing, yes. Solid 30 FPS, it's great. Um, but <laughs> next day I go to play the game, and when I launch it out of suspend, it is choppy and, like, it's going all, and I have to, like, restart the game, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's weird. And finally, so my brother, in the meantime, has bought a PS4 Pro because he got a really good deal on it. He's not really playing any PS4 games at the moment. Yeah, but he's he, like, waiting got for it. that hot Persona drop. He is, he is. And he might play God of War. He's playing something else right now, but when he's done, he might play God of War in the meantime, which he should because it's great. Yeah. And I will lend him my disc. Um, but I'm like, Thomas, can I borrow your PS4 Pro? Because, like, I have been wanting to buy a PS4 Pro 
Basically because I need to replace my base PS4 and it's like, might as well go up, right? Because it's more future-proof and everything. And also God of War enticingly has an unlocked frame rate on PS4 Pro and you can play it up to 60 FPS, which if you've seen the game, you know why you want to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And so he let me borrow his PS4 Pro and... Immediately, like, I put the game in and start the update, you know, thing, and it, like, downloads that one gigabyte thing in five minutes. And I'm like, oh, thank God. This this thing is competent and copies the application really fast. And I'm playing the game in, like, ten minutes, and it's great. This It is unbelievably gorgeous on the PS4 Pro. I don't have a 4K TV, so I'm not using any of those features. Right. But I have it on good authority from the Internet. It still looks good that way, you yeah. know. You can play it in 4K, 30 FPS. Or you can play at 1080p with the unlocked frame rate. Now, this won't be for everyone. I know you have a problem with this sometimes, Sean, yeah. for instance. I like frame rate consistency is more important to me than high frame rate. Yeah, and so, you know, this might not be for you, and that's totally fine, because uh, it does judder a little bit in places because it will go up and down, but it's generally in the high 40s to, like, mid-50s is my understanding from, like, a Digital Foundry video I watched. Yeah. Because those videos are more interesting than they have any right to be. Yes, yeah. I watch them for games I never even plan on playing. I know. They're they're good at what they do. Yeah. But anyway, um, but I love it because this game looks so good but also has such, like, the texture detail is so rich. And when you have a higher frame rate, it really does... It looks... It Honestly, it looks like I'm playing something in 3D almost. Like, without... It obviously isn't. It's a 2D game. But I feel like I've got the glasses on and, like, Kratos is a three-dimensional being. Because maybe the most uh, impressive graphical effect in the whole game is Kratos himself. Yeah. Because he looks just... He looks like a human being. Like, he looks like you, like his skin, just like the pores and the texture. It's amazing, and especially at that higher frame rate. So it really looks gorgeous. And I have now bought a PS4 Pro because eBay had a sale the other day where they would give you $50 off yeah. on something. And Newegg had one. And it comes with Far Cry 5. Okay. So I'm going to yeah. get to play that. Good. And God of War 3. So I might get to toy around with the worst God of War game. Sure. As you say. Well, I'm sure the PSP games sure, are worse. Sure. are worse. But the but worst yeah. good God of War game, probably. Yeah. But uh, I actually am kind of interested to try it out. Because for some reason, they haven't put 1 and 2 on the PS4, which is yeah, dumb. Yeah, weird. But anyway. Uh, so yeah. So I've got one coming. And I'll give mine back. The one I'm using back to my brother when I get mine. But like... Uh, I do approve of the PS4 Pro so far. It is a much uh, faster system, and God of War looks very good on it. But, again, back to the main point, God of War just looks fucking amazing, yeah. no matter how you play it. Yeah, and it's a combination of both, like, the technical excellence and the art design and yes. stuff of, like, you know, that or that part early on in the game when you meet the witch and you go to her house... And, Jesus and yeah, and Travis is like, oh, "Do you live under that tree?" And she's or in that tree. And she's like, "Not in the tree, under the tree." It's like, "Huh?" And then the tree slowly rises up, and you see, it's like, "That's not a." F- I mean, it is a tree, but the point is that it's not a tree. The point is that it's a tree growing out of the back of a gigantic fucking turtle, and that turtle is the coolest looking thing. And it's just he just hangs out. He's just chilling there. And it is the sense of scale they are able to accomplish with that kind of stuff with, like, him, like, the dragons that are in the game, Jormungand, the world serpent. These things are just fucking gigantic. But, like you say, they feel really tangible. They feel like they exist in that space, which is one of those things that feels like if this was a game on the last generation, they would not feel like that. And and one of the areas where I felt like the, you know, the technical excellence of the game and what they're able to achieve with that at the same time just feels like utter magic to me is one of the times when I was on, like, one of the sort of side areas of the mountain where you can really see out a huge distance. And I just, like, wound up and chucked my axe as far as I could. And I just watched the axe whirl into the distance, fall, 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 fall. And then I actually saw it impact 
the side of the mountain. It's like, that's not an area you can go to. Like, that's, there's no, like, you know, that's like you get, like, the debug mode and you, like, unlock the camera and you can fly over there. And there's probably, like, kind of okay textures, but, you know, it's that kind of thing. In video games, usually that's just, like, nothing. And normally in a video game, that the actions just sort of disappear from view. And it's like, that's your way of handling that. It's like, no... I don't know what sort of technical trickery they did, but it 100% feels like my axe impacted the side of that mountain like half a fucking mile away. And then I like pulled my hand out and the axe, and it takes like two seconds to come flying all the way back to my hand and I can just watch its trajectory. That shit's fucking mind blowing to me. The, the whole way, like, the axe is a persistent object in the world blows my mind. Yeah. One of my favorite things to do while I'm exploring is that when I get in my boat, I'll just chuck my axe yes. and then forget about it. Uh-huh. until Because you don't need it for a while while you're in the boat. And then I'll get out and I'll do some adventuring. And then it's like, oh, I need to fight. And I'll press triangle. And then I will. It's like the beginning of Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. And then it finally comes. And it feels so awesome. Because they kept in check. Like, oh, you left your axe halfway across the map. You're going to yeah. wait for it. And it is, that's like one of the things that just I think makes me love this game so much is it feels like that axe is a real object in the world. Mm-hmm. It's not just this weapon. It's like every video game, the, like the weapon you have is just this like weird extension of your hand, whether it's like a first person shooter and all you have is this gun that just sort of juts out from the bottom of the screen and that's all you've got. Or it's, you know, like a Ninja Gaiden kind of action game and it's like you have this sword that's just like it's in your hand and that's all it can do. And, you know, I will always... I love every game where you can sheathe and unsheathe the weapon. That's, like, the best shit. That's, like... Because it does do this little extra detail of, like, I have control over this thing. It's not just a weapon. It is an object. But then this is something that, like, one of the few things that, that combines my love of Hitman and my love of God of War is that the object's, like, is an object and it can leave your hand. So, it's like, in Hitman, my gun's not just a gun. My gun can, like... I can put it on the table. I can put it on the ground. I can, like... Fucking throw it away. I don't need the gun. And the gun, if it exists somewhere in the world, it has some sort of impact on where it is in the world. In God of War, the axe is like that also. That wherever it is, that's where it is. You can go tremendous, ridiculous distances away from that axe. They will, like, there are certain areas where eventually they will have to call it back to you, either because you sure, have a yeah. puzzle or, like, you're loading into a totally different area, which the way they disguise loads in this game is another, like, sort of genius bit of technical engineering. We're going to talk about it in a minute. Yeah, you, there are no loading screens. Um, but yeah, like, but generally speaking, you can throw that fucking axe into a rock in the side of a mountain and walk to like the other side of the fucking mountain and you, that axe will still be over there. And that's, that like element of it is so smart. And it's a combination of technical engineering, like graphical design, sound effects. Cause like the whirling sound of the axe and how it crashes through the environment animation and and just like technical wizardry to know where that axe is and get all the little like pieces to work together so it doesn't flip out every single time you try to summon the axe back to your hand Mm -hmm. the other technical thing is uh this game never cuts yes yeah right now asterisk you can die you can go into a pause menu and there are some cuts to white occasionally but by and large this game never once has an, a visible edit in it, yeah. which sounds like, oh, that sounds impressive. Wait until you play the game. Yeah. Because there is something about having a game where there's never a difference between a cutscene and gameplay. It's just completely smooth. You go into it, you come out of it. The camera has to be very dynamic and move around. And, you know, it's, it, does, it cannot rely on time dilation. It cannot rely on different kinds of angles and things like that. Um, that is a hard enough thing to do 
you know, in a 90-minute movie, obviously. With, yeah. Because, you know, it's a real camera and you have real people to deal with. But in a possibly 60-hour game. Yeah. And realize, like, just the thought that this camera can take you from the tree you are at at the start of the game. Yeah, where, like, to, when you press start, like, that's when it starts. Like, it doesn't yep. go to load screen and you press start at the beginning of this game. It just goes. Yes. You can start there and you can get to, you know, the heights of this mountain or the depths of this cavern or something and all the crazy shit in between and it's never going to cut away. That sounds like a gimmick to some and I understand that if you haven't, like, played it but when you look at, like, it is an immense both technical achievement, I think maybe the greatest technical achievement I've ever seen in a video game, but also a huge artistic one. One of the best artistic achievements I've seen in a game. Especially, I think... Once you enter the phase of the story I am in, and that's all I'll okay. say, yeah. is what they are able to do with that. And I think what that kind of dynamic moving you know, camera without cuts does to the storytelling and your immersion and emotional investment in it is a stunning thing. And it's a crazy fucking thing for them to have tried. And it, they pull it off so well, and I can't imagine the game any other way. Yeah, and it's the kind of thing, even not having seen, like, the stuff you're alluding to, it is just, like, I feel like immediately from moment one, you understand that it feels like this necessary aesthetic choice for, like, the tone and style that the game is going for. In particular, at the beginning of the game, there's this one shot, it's a combination of, like, the, the cinematography and the music and everything, and then my knowledge of Kratos as a character that all comes into play. But, like, in one of the earliest cutscenes, you follow Atreus into the house, and he's praying at the side of his mother who has died because that's sort of the setup of the game is you're taking the mom's ashes up to the top of the highest peak in Midgard or whatever or in, the, in the, all the realms or whatever you do it um, and so you you kind of leave Kratos for a second and you follow Kratos and he's doing these prayers and then all of a sudden Kratos like looks up looks towards the door and then the camera sort of like like really violently spins and pans like over to the door and you see Kratos standing there silhouetted silhouetted by like the white snow in the background and his theme the whole like this really ominous deep choral theme comes up it's like oh fuck like this is what this game is doing aesthetically what it's doing with this character how it's like taking the like really properly like classically epic like that the actual meaning of that term and taking that like epic sense of mythology and really applying it in this way that feels grounded and how the camera is so tight in on Kratos and I read a really good essay I think it might have been on Waypoint the other day um about the way that the con or might have been a polygon but it was about the way that the old God of War games use like really far away big camera uh, perspectives to try to sell scale so it pull way out and show you you're Kratos you're like this little tiny ant dude climbing on this titan and, and this God of War is the exact opposite of that you are super tight in and the sense of scale comes from I am this you know I am a god but in this world like gods are the size of humans and it's like I am sitting here staring up at the world serpent and that's the way they, can, they accomplish that sense of scale and so much of that comes from this really fluid intuitive movement of the camera without any cuts without any like boundary between like you and the world in front of you that would be accomplished by those cuts that is such a fucking amazing cinematic feat to accomplish in a, a game like this and like you said for it to just continue like that for the whole game is is absurd it's, it's the decision of a madman but and, it fucking works well and where there are places where you would think there's no way they can keep this up and they do which is what you're talking about when they disguise load screens yeah brilliant 
Yeah. Utterly brilliant. It we has, have come a long way from Mass Effect elevators. Yes, 100%. And it has, I think, the best fast travel thing ever. Would you go into... I don't even want to say what it is in case people haven't done it. Because I haven't done it that many times. Because you only... They kind of like forced you to do it at one point in the story at least. Um, but it's just... The first time I did the fast travel and I was just kind of expecting... Oh, it's going to pop up the map. I'm going to pick an icon and I'm going to be there. It's like, nope. Like, it's a whole thing. Like, they come up with a whole system to avoid the fucking cutting is like that's so good i love that shit so much it's great all right i i would like to talk about the story and the characters but we are kind of out of time yeah and we will get into all of that next week when hopefully we can talk about the yeah. scope of the whole story onto its ending i and i will say i i love and hate and love bad dad kratos so much he's kratos can i just ask you one thing though yeah um while we're on this because yes kratos amazing character what do you think of the they did change his voice actor i've never known any other voice yeah. and i think this one is fucking amazing i i love it i think because it's something that it honestly doesn't feel that much like it's a different voice because it has a similar quality to the original voice but it especially because I, I ended up watching some cutscenes from God of War 3 just be like what like one what the fuck happened at the end of that game I remember it being bad but I want to see the specifics of it again and then also like what was Kratos like like how did he look and how did he sound and it has similar qualities to that voice but it just feels much gruffer much older and it has this very somber tone to it which so matches the switch to Norse the Norse setting and all the snow and everything like that yeah I think it's such a good because he also he does feel like Kratos he feels like he has all those character dynamics like you know he doesn't care about anybody it's my favorite thing about Kratos from the old games and this one is just like he does not want to put up with anybody's shit it's like someone's like hey I can you can go help me find this ring it's like no is this going to help me in any material way? No. Fuck off, dwarf. Like, no. And you, you need... It's one of the great, like, narrative bits of having Atreus there to motivate that stuff in the story. Yes. And Kratos is to be like, fine, boy. We'll go do this. My one other thing I'll say, I'll plant this flag for next week. Kratos gets a bad rap as a bad dad. He's a good dad and his son should listen to him more because he has wisdom to impart. Damn it. He, he does. He could maybe be a bit more supportive and positive in some ways, I will say. It's a harsh world and Atreus has got to learn. He, he does. He has The boy has to learn. Also, maybe Kratos. Maybe as someone who has spent the past year of my life learning how to teach people, I will tell you it is proven by research that negative reinforcement does not fucking work. So maybe if he was a bit more positive, Atreus would be a bit more like happy to learn what Kratos wants to pass on. I'm just saying, if, if I could learn from the God of War, you know, I'd be, I'd, be, I'd listen. I would shit All my right. pants and run away. <laughs> yes, that's probably that's probably true. You want to talk some Avengers? Let's talk about Avengers. So Sean, going from you know one interpretation of Norse mythology to another, yes. Avengers: Infinity War, which does have more overlap with God of War than maybe we would have predicted this time last year. Yep. Um, Avengers Infinity War, we're bringing together everyone. You and I were talking about this off the air that the cast list for this movie is 27 actors deep in yeah. just the main like people on the poster, which is insane. We have come a long way from how is Joss Whedon going to wrangle six people into one movie yeah. to how are the Russo brothers going to wrangle 18 movies worth of lore and characters into one movie. Yeah. But it works. Yes. Very well. We gave our intro thoughts earlier. It's it's just a really good movie. If you haven't seen it, I would recommend it. This is, and it is an interesting discussion to have, probably the least accept, accept, accessible Marvel movie to newcomers. Oh, yeah. If you have not seen the other movies, you will be, I think, mostly lost. Yeah. I don't think you have to see every single one. 
you know, I would say important ones to see are, like, recently... You should see Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. You should see Civil War. You should see um, Black Panther, because it's just the best one. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the two Guardians of the Galaxy movies. I would watch both, but you don't have to have yeah. both to see it. You know, like, you don't have to go back and see, like, Iron Man 3 or something. But, like... Um, or Thor 2, as, as fun as it is, you know. Yes. Um, so you don't have to have seen all 19, but yes. The be- if you have not seen Thor Ragnarok, at least, the beginning of this movie would be gibberish. Yeah, especially um, if you seen every other Marvel movie except for Thor Ragnarok this movie it's like the opening of this movie would be about the most confusing 15 minutes of your life it really would be um but yeah so maybe it's a little less accessible but you should see it if you have any love for Marvel movies you will enjoy it and with that spoilers spoilers in five four three two one they blew it all up yes those crazy bastards they blew it all up Yes, it is. Sean, yeah. my reaction, end of this movie, Thomas can attest, my brother can attest to this because we saw it together, is when, so end of the movie, everyone, like half the cast literally has turned to dust, Yeah, and it ends with Thanos watching the sunset, and he smiles, and we cut to black, directed by Joe and Anthony Rousseau. I was cackling like a madman. I yeah. was laughing so hard, not because it's a funny scene, but because the audacity that they, they like, we did it. We burned it all down. And we'll have a discussion. Yeah, obviously I know Spider-Man isn't staying dead. Oh, yeah, yeah. But just the fact that they did it, they went through with it, that's the cliffhanger they set this up on, is insane to me. And I actually think it's good to start at the end because it kind of speaks to what this movie is. It's Thanos' story. Yes. Is what it is. Like, that's yeah. why they choose... I mean, they basically begin it with what Thanos is doing and they end it with what where Thanos has arrived and what he has accomplished. He has succeeded. He has probably the most screen time out of any individual character, I would guess, because he interacts with basically every other like like configuration of characters because they He does, yeah. Yeah, the basic the, the way that the Russo brothers sort of solve the character problem is by making about three different groups that move around and some of them interact. Some of them like the Iron Man group is mostly isolated. But Thanos kind of, like, moves between and basically fucks up all of them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, Robert Downey Jr. has a lot of screen time. Um, The Guardians all have a ton, which is interesting. Like, I was saying this to Thomas. Like, if this weren't an Avengers movie, like, the way Captain America Civil War is kind of an Avengers movie, but it's called Captain America Civil War, this is, like, Guardians of the Galaxy Infinity War. Because it's sort of, like... A lot of the world building is going off of what James Gunn did in those films. Those yeah, because those are the ones that have the most attachment to Thanos. I mean, Thanos is in like a small role in Guardians, Guardians 1. 1. So yeah, that's the you most know, we've seen him before now. Gamora is super central to this entire narrative, yeah. more than I expected. And one of the MVPs absolutely here. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I mean... But the whole movie is pretty fucking insane. From that first scene where they murder most of the Thor supporting cast... Yep. ...to the end where... He he snaps his fingers. He does it. It's insane. And like you know, I had heard like the the one to a person, everyone who had seen this movie early, whether they liked it or they didn't, said the ending is crazy, and I loved it. And my thought was, what would a crazy ending to this movie be? I'm like, maybe Thanos wins. Like, could they? Would they do? Could they? And when it came to the ending, I realized that's where they're going with it. It was just like edge of my seat, like. They're doing it. Oh, my God. And, I, again, I saw this at my favorite theater in Colorado, the Cine Capri at Harkins in Northfield. And it's, a, it's the biggest screen in Colorado, and it's a 600-person auditorium. And, for one, very rarely does that auditorium fill up because 600 people is a lot for one movie theater. Yeah. 
But it's, it filled up for this, and it filled up for, I remember, Star Wars The Force Awakens. And I think Harry Potter 8 back in the day. So, like, I know a couple of cases where it's been that full. And those are all great experiences, because 600 people watching a good movie is cool. Yeah. But, like, this movie, there was so much good audience, like, participation. But particularly near the end, when people started disappearing... It was just like you could hear people being like, oh my god, no! And like the best one was when, the way they frame this is genius, where um, Black Panther and, yeah. uh, what's the woman's name? The actress Okoye. Okoye, yeah. yeah. His um, guards woman. Guard, yeah. Like General Lee. Yeah, yeah. Okoye. And it, it, it pans over to her and like Black Panther saying, this is no place to die. And you think Okoye is going to disappear. Because yeah. that's how they're framing it. Because it's like, they're not going to fucking... Because like, this is also one of the first ones of like one of the main heroes disappearing. It's like, fucking Black Panther's not going to disappear. That's crazy. And then when his arm starts disappearing, I've never heard something like this in a movie. Just the, oh! Like from the whole crowd. Because that's the one thing is that throughout this movie, any hint of Wakanda, the crowd went wild. Because yeah. people love Black Panther now, right? Yeah. Which is just the coolest thing in the world. But like that they, they're like, those fuckers, they killed Black Panther. How could they? And then, you know, you cut to like... Uh, Spider-Man slowly dying like Mr. Stark I don't I don't want to go I don't I'm sorry sir I, yeah, I love that like everybody else gets like 15 seconds and they disappear and it's like this fucker take like 16 year old Spider-Man my favorite superhero and just slowly just sitting there fucking assholes and it's just the way that movie works over the crowd and then when it cuts to black and I just could hear the whole crowd go like Oh, like, no, we have to wait a year for more of this. And the way they've marketed it, they haven't marketed it as part one. I'm sure, like, half the people in that audience didn't know there's a part two. And we're, we're furiously Googling after the movie. Yeah. It's That's one of my obsessions with this movie is just imagining what if there isn't another one. What if, <laughs> like, what if it's like all of a sudden tomorrow Marvel just announces... They've canceled all their plans for future movies. They're like shuttering Marvel Studios and this is it. It would be the most amazing thing in the world. I have loved the small but vocal chorus of people on Twitter arguing whenever anyone says, like, obviously they're going to bring those characters back. And people will be like, it could be misdirection. You know, they've announced the next Spider-Man and Black Panther, but what if they never make one? And I'm like... Then they're not a company? Like, that's yeah. not how companies work? Yeah, like, I don't imagine, like, the executives at Disney being very pleased with, like, stunt movie announcements that they no. cancel, cancel after the fact. But people are like, what if it's all real? It's like, okay, again, they're going to bring the characters back. but And we're going to go into, into this because this is part of my whole thesis for why this movie works and why I'm yeah. excited for the next one is that... The impact is very real and very exciting to see, even if, of course, we all know they're going to come back and there's going to be a line at the beginning of Spider-Man Homecoming 2 where they're going to be like, that was really fucking weird when half the population disappeared. Huh, all right, let's go to biology, right? Like, yeah. we're going to do that, but it's the journey, not the destination. Let's have fun along the way. Well, like, do you want to just do speculation now since you raised that specter? Let's do yeah. I mean, let's just let the conversation go where it is because yeah. I don't know how to summarize. Yeah, because it is the thing that's because like the plot of this movie is Thanos gets all the Infinity Gems and murders half of the half of all life in the universe. Yeah, and it's like kind of hard to. It was something where it was like after the movie was over, I was thinking about because I finished watching this movie about six hours ago. I was sitting there thinking, how the fuck are we going to talk about this movie in the podcast? I think the only way is just to go where the conversation takes us. Um, so yeah, for me with, on terms of the speculation where they go, like, I think they do the, like, there was a, uh, big crossover event 
like early 2000s in Marvel Comics called House of M, where Scarlet Witch uses her reality like bending powers to make it so that I find it's been so long. I think she makes it so that mutants never exist, or it's the opposite that now everyone is just a mutant. I don't remember which one it is, but basically ends with like most of the population of the Earth being dead. Whatever. I I only read like half the issues of that event because most comic book crossover events are not very good. Infinity War the movie is about the best version of this I've ever seen, mostly because it gets to be a movie and can be focused the way a movie is, whereas big comic book crossover events are, like, dispersed and weird and don't work. Um, But yeah, so, like, that's kind of... My mind goes to, for this movie and the next one, a sort of similar thing of, I think, instead of it'll be, like, like Spider-Man, like, you know, Tony Stark and everybody does some crazy thing in Spider-Man and everyone comes back to life and at the beginning of Homecoming 2 it's a line. It's like, oh, that was crazy. I think, like... Reality is going to shift. I think. I think probably most of the people who survived this movie will be dead at the end of the next movie That's, yes. for good because they very specifically left most of the oldest people. Like Thor is still there, Cap is still there, Iron Man's still there, Hulk's still there, Black Widow's still there. I'd be kind of sad if they kill off Black Widow without ever giving her her own movie. It's I don't think they're going to kill. Let, let me. Well, finish what okay. you're going to say. So I think like most of, if not all of, those like big main people who survived this movie will be like dead, dead at the end of the next one because Robert Downey Jr. can't make these movies forever. So like this. If you don't kill him at the end of the next movie, I don't know when you would ever be able to kill that character off. Well, because here's what I've been thinking. Okay, like, yeah. I've been thinking of it less of like the mechanics of it than I think how they have structured these two movies, or at least what I think the structure of the next one is going to be, is genius. Because yeah. you can do a two-parter like you know Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows or something, where you basically make one five-hour movie and you cut it in the middle, right? Yeah. And that's okay, but it's not. That's more fun to watch as just one five-hour movie than over six months, yeah. right? Especially as someone who saw those movies and was not that invested in the source material, I would say it's not okay. Yeah, no, and <laughs> like I left the movie theater after the end of that first one, being pretty upset. It's like fuck that. I didn't even like half of this movie. Yeah, and I've had that experience with like the Hunger Games sequels yeah. or something because I don't really care for those books. But yeah. Um, so, but what they've done with this is that Infinity War, and this is the most impressive thing about it to me, is it is a movie. Like, when people yes. say it's just part one, I, I mean, it is. There is obviously more story to tell and we're not done. Yeah, in the but way that, the like, pl- Empire Strikes Back is. Sure. Yeah. But this movie has a plot that ends. The and, and because it ends with the villain winning, we all know there's more. But, like, I think Empire Strikes Back is a great comparison. It's over an overused comparison in general, but it applies here, right? Yes. Yeah. Because what is the plot of this movie is that... Thanos wants the Infinity Gems, the Avengers want to stop him getting the Infinity Stones, and they fail. And it's okay for the heroes to fail in terms of plot structure, and he wins, and that's the end of the movie. And that is a culmination of this story. But what that leaves for the next film is something very different. Because I I agree, I was especially paying attention to this, my second viewing, of who gets disappeared and who doesn't, you know? And... Um, you know, on screen, more than half of our characters disappear. You know, like this yeah. this impacted superheroes uh, non-proportionally, yes. right? But what they've done is they've taken most of the, like, post-phase uh, one heroes out of the equation, right? And yeah. we're back to mostly the original heroes. Like, the only Guardian who survives is Rocket Raccoon, yeah. you know? Because if we didn't have a scene with Rocket and Tony Stark before this is done, I would go punch Kevin Feige in the face. Yes. Huge missed opportunity. Um but no. Um, so what you have is this, you know, core cast. So I think what they've been able to do is kind of a have your cake and eat it too situation where Infinity War is this huge, bombastic, crazy movie with every character in it. And it's insane in its structure. And you have all different kinds of big conflicts going on. 
But now you've got this next movie coming. The cast has been very much pared down. You're kind of back to basics. And what you're going to have to do is put the characters who got us into the Marvel Universe originally, they are going to be on the line, you know? And it's going to be back to being their story and how are they going to, I think, make the decisions that will wrap up their stories and kind of put the universe that they have impacted back together. And it means that I'm guessing the next one is going to be a more intimate movie, a smaller movie. I don't think it's going to end with the same kind of bombast this one did because I don't know how it could. Yeah. And that just seems so smart to me. And to me, it all hinges on Tony Stark. Because I don't know about the other characters, but Iron Man is fucking dead at the end of the next movie. Like, yes, obviously. I mean, at the be- his first scene is talking to Pepper Potts about having a kid and getting married. It's like that scene on The Simpsons where there's the police officer saying, I'm retiring tomorrow and I just bought a boat called the Live Forever. Yeah. And, he- and then he gets shot by someone. And he's like, oh, that's ironic. That's basically what they're doing with Tony Stark yeah. here. But it also makes sense that, again, having your cake and eating it too, you get to do this big thing where Thanos wipes out half the universe. But to keep an ongoing impact on you know, our existing Marvel universe, I think Tony, as the natural endpoint of the arc he's been on since 2008 with Iron Man 1, is going to have to pay the ultimate price to put the world right again. And it feels like that's the one that I'm definitely sure about. Now, some of the other characters I don't know, like... Captain America, it's actually kind of hard to get a beat on him because he is by far the least featured in this movie. Yeah. Like, he's very sidelined. And I don't know if that's a complaint or not. We'll talk about it later. Um, But it feels like, you know, he could, maybe not, who knows. Thor, I would have said yes before Thor Ragnarok, but I really want Thor Ragnarok too. Yeah. Like, his arc doesn't feel done to me. But we'll see. Uh, And if there's any character that you could easily, or like, not easily, but you could, like, justifiably make survive more encounters with Thanos, it's Thor. Like, he's the guy. Like yeah. he can come out of this, and I, you know, Rocket Raccoon is not dying. I think James no. James Gunn would burn down the Marvel offices if they took Rocket Raccoon away from him. No, yeah, they would not um, kill off a character like that outside you know, of the movie. But I agree. I think in general, the shape of things is going to be different. And so when people say, you know, oh, why do you care about this stuff at the end of the movie? It's all going to be erased. I'm like, well. But maybe there will be a toll for that that is longer lasting, you know? Because it will be really impactful if that's how Tony Stark goes out. And honestly, to be fair, that's kind of a more impactful thing 10 years into this than just taking a bunch of characters we've known for one or two movies, you know? So I think where they're headed with this is genius. And I think being able to kind of see the contours of what's coming next at the end of this movie makes me all the more excited because I think they have an actual story to tell. It's not just showmanship. It feels like... They have a direction and they have two different movies that they, they want to make here. And it's not, they've just sold us, you know, two tickets to one film. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. And it is something that it's, it is the, like the thing I said at the beginning of this podcast where it's like, it's like the blockbuster movie to end all blockbuster movies or whatever. That it has this, it just feels like it has this cultural weight and impact that like, I don't know I've ever seen another movie have in quite this way. Obviously, like, you know, Black Panther and Wonder Woman have their own version of, of cultural impact. Whereas this one just feels like a fucking nuclear bomb just, like, landed on American pop culture. of Just, like, holy shit. <laughs> like, well, like, it's what, basically, like, it was like what you're describing as that theater experience. It was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, well, the, and I the think... The is shifting. I think what you're getting at is, you know, there really hasn't been an ongoing thing like these Marvel movies before to this degree. Yeah. You've got things like the Universal Monster films that are a clear precedent or the Godzilla films yeah. or something. Um, but to really tell this ongoing story over 10 years, over 19 movies, and then to make a film like this that really does reward your fandom over 10 years and putting it all together... 
that's just so much fun to me. It's like I said in my first tweet about this movie. It's like an out-of-body experience if you're yes, a fan of these yeah. movies. And I've also seen the cynical take from people I respect, which is that, God, but look how many movies like they sold you to get to this point and all the money you're paying on. And it's like, me, it's like, I enjoyed all of those I enjoyed movies. all those like, movies, yeah. It's, this is the cumulative like impact of like that no one movie could ever do what this movie does. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, it reaps the benefit of the structure that these movies have always had. This serial storytelling structure. Yeah. That, like, this is the point. Like, this is the, the like, culmination of a lot of that stuff. Yes. And I can understand, like, not being... If you're not into the movies, you're, like, this is going to be probably your least favorite of all of them. Because, like, this is the one that you need to care about all of them to care about this one more than any other. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah. But to me, it's like, like, look, is there a gross capitalistic side to all of this? Sure. Yes. All all, all capitalism yeah. is gross. But and all movies are capitalistic in some way that you yeah. have ever seen. But you know what? If I enjoy them and I get fun out of them and I like going to see them, yeah, that's kind of what money is for. So I'm yeah. okay with it. Um, and yes, to me, it's like a really good TV show, you know, that you follow for years and you get that payoff and it's so great. Like the end of Breaking Bad or something. When it all comes together and you start to get the payoff and it just... You know, no one movie can do that for you, right? Because you can't do that in just 90 minutes or two hours. But Marvel is... The thing that makes it maybe separate from TV is that you get to do it on these big budgets with all these big movie stars and these... It's a big canvas to play with. It takes advantage of the, the, like, naturally, like, commutative experience of watching movies in a movie theater. Yes, like, that's something, too. And I tweeted about this, and I want to expand on this because I don't know how eloquent I was on Twitter about this. But I was saying... My favorite thing about the Marvel movies, like why do I talk about them on the podcast so much with you, for yeah. instance? Is it because I think they're the best movies ever and they're the things we should focus on most in the art of film? No, I'm not going to say that. Yeah, That's not true. But are they the things that more than any other individual movie franchise everyone can watch and enjoy and talk about right now? Yes. That's where we all are. They're fun. They're pretty guilt-free fun because they're just yeah. good fun movies. And they're getting better all the time because these last couple years have been by far the best years they've had. Yeah. And that's fun. There is something communal about film. And there are actually very few communal experiences anymore in media. You know, like if you were watching TV in the 90s and you were a fan of the X-Files, well, 25 million other people watched the X-Files. And if you went to work, they probably saw it last night too. And you could have your water cooler conversation. That doesn't happen with TV anymore. Or like I think our version of that, or at least my version of that was Dragon Ball Z in elementary school. And it's like... Going to the, the fucking cafeteria table and being like, did you guys fucking do this other kid fucking turn Super Saiyan and kill Frieza? Holy shit. Yeah. Like anything because like... by the time we grew up, network TV was dead. Right. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, you don't get that with TV anymore. Sometimes you'll have a hit like a Stranger Things that a lot of people have seen. But a lot of people, just as many more people, have not. You know, yeah. even if it's a big hit. Like Game of Thrones is probably the closest TV has right now. And that's still, that's not... 50 million people. It's mm-hmm. 10 to 20, you know? And the Marvel movies, you will have a couple times a year. All of America goes to see these movies. We can talk about it on the podcast. I know there's a bunch of you out there wanting to listen to it. And when you go to the movie, you know you're going to have a fun, receptive audience that's going to have fun with you on it. And then you can go talk to your friends about it. And that's cool. We don't yeah. have much of that anymore. And is it stupid superhero shit? Sure. But you know what? The world really sucks right now. Yeah. So it's kind of fun to go watch you know, cool people do good things. And, yeah. and that's what I value about these movies. And Infinity War, to me, really is a celebration of that. Of saying, look at all the stuff we've built. How can we find you know, new ways to put these toys together and get everyone in the theater having fun watching all these things bounce off each other? 
And I think the movie does that element of it, you know, brilliantly. There are moments that are so well tailored to a movie audience. The the two that come to my mind strongest, uh, outside of like the really sad ending, mm-hmm. is when Cap shows up and the train is going by, and then you see a silhouette and he catches the thing, yeah, and then throws it back and steps out of the shadows. My audience went ape shit for that. And just a raucous applause didn't hear the next couple lines. Especially, like, one of the best things about that reveal is I feel like the trailers did a good bit of misdirection. Because it felt like the trailers showed the first time you'd see Captain America would be in Wakanda. Yep. That's 100% what I was, I was expecting. So when he appeared in fucking Scotland, I was like, holy shit, Captain America's just showed up. And like, he's got a cool beard. He's got a super cool beard. It's great. And then the other one is when Thor arrives from space by the Bifrost yep. to the Wakandan battlefield and you have that awesome power shot of him, Rocket, and Groot and he's got his cool new axe basically the Leviathan axe from God of War yeah. but with Groot's arm on it and another one where just so raucous that the second time I saw it today I was happy to catch the next couple of lines because there's some good dialogue there that I just did not hear yeah. and it does that great and like this is the thing about Marvel movies is I enjoy watching them on DVD or something but they're just so much less fun outside of the theater and I don't really take that as a knock on them that's what they're built for and it's yeah. fun to go see them in the theater um but, like, yeah, this, it, see it with an audience. It's not going to be as fun on your own, on your TV, you know? Yeah, like, there is a reason why these are, like, the only movies I will regularly, like, go through the, like, absurd effort to watch movies at movie theaters and, and do all that shit compared to just waiting for it to go on, on like, Blu-ray or Netflix or something like yeah. that. It's because it's, like, it is, there's, like, it's both being able to talk about on the podcast, but there is something about the communal experience of it. Like, one of the things I'm most excited about is on Monday I'm going to be in high school and hear what the high schoolers think about it because they've all are going to go see this movie. Yeah. You know, it was like they all recognized Paul Rudd immediately as fucking Ant Man. The fact that anybody would ever be able to actually like recognize any actor as being the actor that played Ant Man is a sentence that if you told me in two thousand eight when Iron Man came out, I would have kicked you in the balls. Like, like stop trying to trick me or whatever you're doing because that's the craziest thing anyone's ever said. I'll do you one better, Sean, and maybe this can transition us into something else. Five years ago. Yes. When, uh, like, a year after Avengers 1, the year of Iron Man 3, let's say. Okay. Guardians yes. of the Galaxy is in production, but it hasn't come out yet. Uh-huh. You know, we haven't... Doctor Strange is a, is a, is a little blink in Kevin Feige's eye of, yeah. like, maybe I will make this one day. So five years ago, if I told you, Sean, that there would be a scene in an upcoming Avengers movie where Spider-Man saved Doctor Strange in space by webbing him and then using cool, like... Uh, you know, spider arms out of the back of his cool Iron Man spider suit to keep Doctor Strange on the spaceship that he is on with Iron Man, would you have believed me that they would do that? No. Because, one, they didn't even have fucking spider rights to Spider-Man at the time. Two, like, even Doctor Strange still seemed like a pipe dream. Yep. And, you know, that you would have Iron Man and Spider-Man together in space. It's nuts. Or like at the end of this movie with the uh, the fight with Thanos on Titan, where you have Star-Lord hopping across Doctor Strange's magic things to go punch Thanos, which is followed by Spider-Man coming out of Doctor Strange's portals going, magic, magic, yeah. magic kick, yeah. magic punch. Yeah. All of that. Like there are just some moments where it just took me out for a second and be like, I can't believe this is where we are. Yeah, it is the culmination of all of the... Like, it is... in some, You could frame it in one way as the culmination of capitalism. Yes. But it's also the culmination of, like, a lot of legitimate creative and artistic efforts... Yes. ...made to, like, build up to this moment of taking 
these characters that have been in the popular subconscious since the 60s for most of them and then like the 80s or 90s for some of the more modern characters like the Guardians but like these characters that have been around been in cartoons comic books like some movies some of which like Spider-Man have been successful some of which like Daredevil or something like that or like Fantastic Four were typically not and it's like taking a bunch of these different characters that have been around and then like doing this absurd thing of being able to put them all in one movie together and they're all wearing like bright Technicolor costumes and jumping around and Spider-Man's doing quips that are legitimately funny and Spider-Man's like played by basically a kid and you have fucking Doctor Strange there and you have... You know, it's the kind of thing of thinking about like like five years ago saying like, oh, like this character will be in this movie or something. It's like like a movie where like Spider-Man will save Mantis from Guardians of the Galaxy. It's like, I didn't even know who Mantis was. It's like, I'm the comic book guy. On this. I think I said this in the last time we talked about one of these movies. It's like, I have lost my position as the comic book guy on the podcast because like the comic book world of Marvel has so been suffused into the entire like our culture that's like I have no like special privilege over that information anymore because it's gotten deeper than I did for a lot of that stuff. Absolutely. And you know, I don't think Infinity War is the best Marvel movie. No. I don't think it's probably one of the best 3 or 4. Maybe it's in the top 5, but it is the most indicative I think of their overall ethos, mm-hmm. which is that you can just Feel palpably from every frame of this movie how much everyone involved loves these characters. Yeah. And if you want to ask me the core difference why Marvel has worked as an ongoing thing and why DC has not, why most superhero movies in the early 2000s did not, why most imitators will not, it's because this all comes from a place of love. That, you know, Kevin Feige is the producer on all these and he is a fucking nerd yeah. who loves his comic book characters and loves his Doctor Strange and wanted to make a Guardian of the Galaxy movie and has consistently found people and filled that company with people who are equally passionate about those characters and find people who are uniquely passionate about the character they are going to be portraying, you know? And that is what makes the Marvel movies special because when you come to see them, they are matching your enthusiasm and it doesn't feel cynical, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Zack Snyder doesn't give a shit about Superman. Yeah. I don't think he likes Batman other than for the murder boner stuff. And he couldn't give two fucks about Wonder Woman. And Justice League shows that every inch of the way because they don't like those characters. Yeah. And so you feel talked down to as a viewer, right? Yeah. But if you watch Thor Ragnarok or you watch Black Panther or you watch Doctor Strange or any of the Iron Mans or whatever it is, Guardians of the Galaxy, certainly. Yeah. Those filmmakers and the actors playing the characters and the people putting them together love those characters and want to, you know, see them in these settings. And so you feel that energy come across. And Infinity War, frame one to the end, is giddy with that. Of Uh like, look how many cool characters played by amazing actors. Like, if you look at the lineup, this is like just one of the best casts ever assembled for anything. Yeah, it is like the most stacked cast of any movie I've seen. Like, how many Oscar winners or nominees are in this fucking cast? It's Mm -hmm. insane. And, you know, just a, and so you got this great cast, and I think everyone's in love with these characters, and you can just feel the passion. And I think what I am most impressed with probably with this as a movie is two things. The structure of it that you were mentioned this earlier, that they split into kind of three basic groups, uh, three or four, depending on how, well, no, the guardians wind up meeting Iron Man. So that's one group, Um, but like three major groups and it cuts between them. But I think it does a really judicious job there where like it doesn't do a lot of quick cuts of like, we're going to spend 
two minutes with Iron Man and then mm-hmm. two minutes with Thor and then two minutes. No, they spend like 10, 15 minutes, let a scene play out in full before we cut. It's kind of the Godfather 2 principle of like uh, Francis Ford Coppola had a cut of Godfather 2 where he went really rapidly between the two time periods. And it was actually George Lucas who said, this isn't a movie. It's, it's nonsensical, you know? And so he really cut it down and had long stretches of each timeline. And, that's probably the only comparison I can make between Godfather 2 and Avengers Infinity War. But it follows some of that ethos of, like, stick with things. Yeah. But within sticking with those things, it really finds, you know, a, a story to tell with these characters in each of those settings. And within those stories it, it has to tell, it has the voice spot on. Yeah. Like, you know, if we are in, like, the beginning of this movie is a follow-up to the end of Thor Ragnarok. Feels like we're watching a deleted scene from Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. Like Thor and Loki and Heimdall talk and act like they did in that movie. And and Hulk feels like he's right out of that film. Yeah. And that's amazing. And then you go to Earth and it's like, yes, this is what would happen in Doctor Strange. And yes, this feels like an Iron Man movie. And that's Spider-Man's bus and there's Ned. Yeah, like the way they introduce Spider-Man is so fucking perfect. Because it's like, yeah, you have like this little tiny cameo from Ned. And it's like, Ned, you have to make a distraction. Like, I have to get out of here. Which is like a scenario from Spider-Man Homecoming. Yes. Yeah. And then I think most impressively when you go into space, as uh-huh. the credit tells us, space, it just feels like you're in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. And it feels like it was written by James Gunn. Because Guardians of the Galaxy has the most, I think, specific voice of all the Marvel movies. Yeah. And is probably the most... Black Panther might be a different thing, but I'd have to kind of see where they go with it, too. Um, but maybe the most auteurist thing in the Marvel Universe. Um, and they've captured James Gunn's voice perfectly. They mm-hmm. sound exactly like they would in the other movies. It doesn't feel like anything is substantially off with those characters. It, and it looks right. It just feels like we're in a Guardians movie. Yeah. And all of that together is so impressive to me because that's what sells it. You know? Uh-huh. Like... Again, to make the Justice League comparison, and I know that's like beating on, you know, a dead horse at this point. Yeah. But it is a good comparison is that like there is no substantial connection between the Wonder Woman of that movie and the Wonder Woman of her own movie Uh where she is this like vibrant, interesting, layered character. And it's still Gal Gadot, talks the same, moves the same, but it feels like a different person. Uh You know, there's no – you don't get any of that rush of like, oh, here's Wonder Woman. It's like, well – I liked that Wonder Woman. That was a good movie. This is nothing, you know? Yeah. But here it's like you cut to these characters and it feels like it's more of what you love. And that takes skill. It takes oh, genuine yes. filmmaking skill. And, you know, it's not just the Russo brothers as the directors. I want to make sure we reference frequently uh, Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, who are the writers of these. They wrote all three Cap movies. They wrote Thor 2, and now they've written this. They are really good at mixing these different voices. Yeah. And so, like, to go in deeper on that, the one I would like to zoom in on the most is Thor meeting the Guardians of the Galaxy. Because to me, that is the most stark example, like, the best example of, like, two different elements of Marvel, the Marvel Universe, hitherto completely separated meeting in what is, like, outside of any, like, the big cool action moments, the best scene to me in the movie. It's it's so so fucking funny. But also, but then, especially, like, where they take Thor is so kind of, like heartbreaking at the same time but yeah like Thor smacks under the windshield of the ship that the Guardians are in and they pull him in and just everything of like they're just examining his body everything that fucking Drax says about he's like a pirate angel it's like a pirate had a baby with an angel angel. and Gamora's just sort of like feeling his muscles it's like it's like his muscles are made of steel cables so he's like could you stop fondling his muscles Everything in that scene is so perfect. And like you're saying, it's like... No, he's not a dude. You're a dude. dude. 
this is a man. <laughs> it's like all those lines are pitch perfect. The delivery is pitch perfect. The way it's shot, the set, the costumes, all of that is perfect. And then it is when... It's the thing I say about all these Marvel properties, that the best thing they do is getting the, the voice for the character right and then the performance for the character perfect so that it makes it whenever there's a crossover. The most exciting thing is thinking about, like, what do how do these characters interact? And having Thor and fucking Peter Quill, like, sort of stand off and, and like, Peter trying to sort of outman Thor is the fucking funniest shit in the world is having Chris Pratt trying to do this big Thor voice in performance. Well, and then the way, it's not just that, it's the way Thor gets pulled into it, where finally Star-Lord is like, no, you're doing my voice. He's like, no, I think you started this. And like, because Thor is like, I think they really landed on this in Ragnarok, that Thor is a lovable lug. Like, he's yeah, kind he's, of an idiot, but he's such a good-hearted idiot. Yeah. And you just have that in that scene. And it's, yes, it's... It's absolutely amazing that they can pull that off. And honestly, I'm even more impressed where, with the, where they take Thor after that, mm-hmm. that they pair him with Rocket and Groot. And they did this in Guardians 2 also, where Rocket goes off with the new character. I guess he's not new, but he goes off with the uh, with Yondu, Yondu yeah. who is, he was in Guardians 1, but is... Has a yeah, much bigger role in 2. Right. And, and Rocket is like... I want him to have solo scenes with every fucking Marvel character yeah. where they wind up revealing their deepest, darkest secrets because he's like this weirdly, like, really effective therapist almost. And so there's that scene where he's like, I guess I gotta go be the captain. Yeah, yeah. And and Thor starts doing the thing of like, uh, do you have a father? He's dead. A mother? She was killed by a dark elf. A best friend? Stabbed through the heart. <laughs> and just like, he goes through all that stuff. Um, but like, the bond they share as friends, like, I realized watching the movie a second time today... It feels like we've had five movies with Thor and Rocket. Uh-huh. But no, they've had, you know, a couple of minutes of screen time together and it feels like they were destined to be there together. Yeah, it, it's like it's even more impressive when you consider that one of them isn't even actually there. One of them is a fucking raccoon. Yes, it's like one of them's a, a computer generated fucking raccoon voiced by Bradley Cooper. And so it's like yeah, the ability for like all those characters to to mix and have chemistry, it's also I love Team Groot, like, think about, like, that side of it, and, like, the little tiny character arc that he gets, which is one of the the great things about this movie, is that they do find little tiny character arcs for every character, that they either change a little bit over the movie, or, like, they very specifically don't change over the movie, like, that's kind of part of their thing. And most of the characters get that. And, like, Groot, Teen Groot gets, a, like, a little bit of that. Where he has a couple of scenes where it's just like, oh, fucking Groot. That, that, like, the first time he talks in the ship when it's just the other guard, he's just like, I am Groot. It's like, oh, hey, language is so good at just setting up where he is now. And then, yeah, he at his sort of, like, last big moment he has is like sacrificing a part of his arm to become the handle for the Stormbreaker axe. Which is so, I just, I hope he keeps that axe for five more solo movies so we can always remember he's holding a piece of Groot. Yes. It's so great. Uh, There's also the fucking amazing line of like, you speak Groot? Yes, it was an elective in Asgard. (laughs) (laughs) And because Thor doesn't make jokes that way, what's so absurd is it's true. Yes, it's 100% true, which makes me want to see like, the weird prequel, like 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 TV special about like how the Guardians and the group people like met Baby thousand Thor. years ago. Yeah, no, uh, it's fantastic. So, yeah. I mean, what other? There's so many character pairings we could talk about. Yeah, like um, how quickly we get Doctor Strange and uh, Iron Man and Hulk together. Yeah, and how quickly they form a rapport is beautiful. Yes, like I love that it, the movie starts with uh, Hulk falling to Earth into the Sanctum. 
And there's that great exchange between Doctor Strange and Wong. But Wong is saying, like, I, do, I reject materiality. It's like, well, okay, I'll get you a metaphysical rye, yeah. you know? And he's like, oh, well, I have 200. 200 what? Uh, rupees. That's about a do- buck and a half. He's like, I'll go get it. I wouldn't say no to a tuna melt. And yeah. it falls through. It's just like, it's such quippy, like, and it does feel like that's not a moment you would probably get in the Doctor Strange movie, but it's like between the movies. Yeah. Their everyday lives. And then Hulk just falls into it. And then he goes and get Tony Stark, and they have their whole discussion about Thanos, and then Spider-Man comes into play, and again, just all of it feels so true to the characters that, yes, Doctor St- Stephen Strange and Tony Stark have the two biggest egos in the Marvel Universe, yeah. and they would fucking hate each other. Yes, I'm, I'm sad that they didn't try to fight each other over facial hair, <laughs> just like, particularly the comics, Doctor Strange and... Tony Stark look exactly the same. Right. Uh, other than, like, the one thing that Strange has is, like, little streaks of white in his hair. That's the only thing that changes yep. about their character design. But, yeah, like, that's such a canny sort of character pair up between Doctor Strange and Iron Man because it's also magic and science and that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's also, like, one of the things that's really impressive about it is it feels kind of bold to have Doctor Strange has such a big role in He's, this movie. I was, he was much bigger in the film yeah. than I thought he would be. Because he only had the one movie before. We both really liked that movie a lot. But yeah. it's, like, not the kind of character I would have expected would have this big, expansive role. It's like, you know, he's in most of the movie that Tony's in. And, like, fucking, you know, it's Iron Man. He's the... Sort of like granddad of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and having those two characters have basically equivalent screen time and lines of dialogue and stuff is really cool. Benedict Cumberbatch was such perfect casting for Doctor Strange and I remember at the time because Cumberbatch was getting cast in everything being like, oh that feels kind of like obvious casting. But then he was so perfect in Doctor Strange and I think the bigger payoff is here where he just slides right into this yeah. cast like he was always there. He plays off everyone they throw at him well. And he gets to play off a lot of fucking weirdos because he has <laughs> Spider-Man, he has Iron Man, and then the, the remaining Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Uh, and also a little bit of Thanos. And he's just such a great presence in all of those. And I love that. And I love that Doctor Strange, of all people, is one of the linchpins of this film. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he gets, I think, one of the most interesting sort of, like, threads through the movie of... Because he's the only one that feels like he kind of understands everything that's going yep. on. Because he's the only one that sort of really understands what the reality stone... Or the, the Infinity Gems are and, and the time gem that he has. It's like Thor has a little connection to that world. The Guardians have a little connection to that world. But, like, Doctor Strange is the fucking Sorcerer Supreme. Like, that, his job is to know this shit. And yep. I love that he's basically the one that calculates this whole plan. And that, that scene where he's calculate like, using the time gem to, like, find out what are all the different possible realities and, like, outcomes of this. And there's only one in which you survive. And it's and I like that little thread of the movie that, you know, you know that, like, things went real bad. But you know that, like, Doctor Strange is that one line that's like, this is the way it had to be. That's like... It, we We're, have to go through this to get through the one, like, one in 14 million shot we have, that one reality that things actually, like, work out kind of in our favor. And you can also feel like, talking about our theory that, obviously, yeah. Tony Stark is toast, probably, after the next movie, there is that you can feel the tragedy building in uh-huh. that, you know, I don't think Doctor Strange and Tony Stark are ever going to be best buds, but they respect each other by the end of the movie, and while Tony is sad watching Doctor Strange die, you just see this glimmer in how Benedict Cumberbatch plays it of, like, you've got the worst job here, buddy. Yeah. You know? And, and it's something that, <clears throat> God, like, if they if Tony does die at the end of the next movie, the, like, the unbelievable irony of, of Doctor Strange 
like because the whole play that Doctor Strange does is he he offers the time gem to save Tony's life, yeah, which is actually going to end up killing Tony probably is like the thing that like that sets you down this path that no you're going to be one of the ones that dies at the end. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting character turn. Yeah, so we've got all of them. We've got. Uh, I mean, let's talk. I do think the underserved characters in this movie, and we can talk about whether it's good or bad, is I think Captain America and kind of his entourage. Yeah, these sort of the Earth crew. Yeah. yeah. So, so like Cap, Black Widow, Falcon, roughly. Yeah. You know, um, like none of, like, uh, honestly, Chris Evans is barely in this movie. Uh huh. And he's got a couple scenes, he has very few lines. He's great, and I love Cap. Um, and I guess personally, I don't really find it a problem because if you gave me this story and said write the script, I don't know what I'd have Cap do either. Because he has no connection to the Thanos Infinite, no. the Infinity Gem stuff, you know. Yeah, and he, but also like you know, he just had Civil War, yeah. which is kind of an Avengers movie, but is fundamentally a Cap movie, and it is about kind of bringing him to this certain place as a character. And having him kind of lay down what he, you know, thinks and believes in. And so he is also kind of at a character plateau at this point. Where it's harder to build an arc in for him than you can for a Doctor Strange or a Tony Stark. Or especially the Guardians characters who are such tumultuous characters, you know. So I think he, you know, would would I like to see more Chris Evans cap? Always. He's probably, you you always say Chris Hemsworth is your favorite. Chris Evans is my favorite, you know. And so would I like to see more of it? Absolutely. Um, do I think they could have done more here? I don't know. I don't really think so. Yeah, and it's something that it feels like they're saving that for the next movie. Yeah, if, if we yeah. come out of the next movie and we say that again, I would be very disappointed. Yeah. I kind of doubt that'll be the case because he'll have a lot more room to play. You know? yeah. But yeah, he, he feels a little shortchanged. But again, I, I don't think it's wrong for this movie. Just like you know, Hawkeye is one of the original Avengers but isn't here. And I'm okay with that too because I don't know what you do with them. Yeah, yeah. It's like... like it, it's something where the scale of things have gotten so ridiculous that it's it's honestly it's kind of hard for me to even buy Black Widow being involved in any of the action scenes really because it's like we're talking about fucking Thanos with like the gems that were like spawned from the birth of the universe fighting a, like a seer god and the fucking sorceress supreme it's like the scale of shit but, is pretty ballooned at this point but that's something just the Russos are so good at is yeah. finding uh, room in the action for everyone because there's that scene where Black Widow and Okoye team up to fight uh, with Scarlet Witch yeah fucking awesome yep that yep. totally feels like they earned their keep and I love them there as characters so yeah. uh, and you know I think all of those people will have their moment in the sun in the next film and I'm okay waiting for that because I think they had a story to tell here and I think they put the focus where it needed to be and I think that takes us to Thanos okay because that is where as you say the focus kind of is most powerfully like in some ways I think you could look at this as being he is like the protagonist of the story like the protagonist and hero are not the same thing like Thanos is the one with like a mission and he's the one that moves the fucking plot forward more than any other character oh he is I I do it's kind of funny I think they made all the right moves with Thanos here part of that though is large scale abandoning anything they did with Thanos in the previous movies sure, so like yeah. a lot of what we learned about him here does not track at all with the the hints of Thanos before which I'm fine with you've yeah. got to tell the story for the moment not for little things you set up before you even cast the actor you know yeah like you know him getting the gauntlet at the end of Avengers 2 is the most nonsensical scene and also, like, you got, you have to kind of put at the back of your mind, like, he probably could have gotten some of these stones earlier. I like the thought that just, like, a week before Infinity War starts, he woke up and said, today's the day. Yep. I'm, I'm going to go get those Infinity Stones. I've got my gauntlet. 
I got my crew. I'm ready. Let's go get those stones. Oh, I had a nice eight hours of sleep. sleep. Yep. I'm going to have a couple of pancakes for breakfast, and it's time to do this thing. Okay. But yeah. No, I, honestly, Thanos is the thing that impressed me most about this movie. Absolutely. Because he was the thing I was most pessimistic about going in. Uh, I thought his, like, one substantial appearance as Josh Brolin, Thanos, in Guardians 1. Those are the worst scenes in Guardians 1. Yeah. Like, the CGI is bad. He doesn't feel like he fits. doesn't feel like there's any characterization. And, you know, Marvel has not really done, like, a big CGI villain before. And you worry, like, could this go the way of Steppenwolf in Justice League? Yeah. quote that horrible movie again. And it so doesn't. I mean, one, it's a huge technical achievement. I think Thanos looks... Um, it's Gollum quality. You yeah. Know, he looks like he is part of the world. Uh, Josh Brolin is very much there in the performance, but it is bigger than a human in makeup could do, which yeah. is something I was worried about, too. So that's great. But I think, you know, most powerfully, they have given him a motivation and a reason for being what he is, why he is, and why he wants to do what he wants to do. And like any great villain, you probably don't agree with what he decides to do, but you can see the validity to some degree in his whole theory of the universe, and that makes him compelling. The best villains, there's two components. They have to believe they are right, but they also have to have some kind of good reason for that in a movie like this. And there is a surprising amount of humanity to Thanos, and there's something that, like... I am left at the end of the movie where, like, again, like, the end of the movie is Thanos is one. He teleports to this, like, weird sort of, like, country home, sits down. And it's like, I think he has that line to, to Tony Stark where it's like, when he's done with all this, he will, like, sit down and, and rest and smile over a grateful universe. And it's like he gets that moment of, like, peace, although he also has lost basically everything he had to get him up to this point. But he sits there and smiles, like, with this sort of, like, satisfaction of a job done and there is a certain element of it of like Thanos might be kind of right. Like if you if like you look at it from Thanos's like large scale perspective, it's like he might be like look at Earth right now. Maybe if half maybe if the certain half people just eh, maybe things would be better. Like you know, it's it is definitely true that life left rampant will destroy its own ecosystem it, and its environment in which it can survive, which is maybe happening to the human race right now. I don't know. You tell me. No, and, and it has. It, you know what? It reminds me of is Mass Effect of like yeah. taking that kind of when you get the Reavers' point of view or something. Yeah, no, Reapers. Reapers. Okay. Yeah. There's there are a lot of characters named either Reapers or Reavers in yes. fiction these days. I cannot keep them straight. Uh, Fair I enough. think God of War has one of the two, and I don't yeah, remember I which one. I think they are Reavers in God okay. of War. Anyway, yes, the Reapers like. It's about this, like, you know, large, like, universal scale, the scale that no, you know, puny human can fathom of this, like, large-scale balancing act. Yeah. And, obviously, the flaw in Thanos' plan is that he will fundamentally and inoperably emotionally scar every single person left in the universe. Yes. And that Including is probably Including himself. A Including himself. And that is the problem, right? But... You, what I like is, is like, and Thanos has this with his adversaries, where he constantly like respects the people he's fighting. Like yeah. he has that great line to Tony of like, you know, half of Earth will be left, and I hope they remember you as a yeah. hero. And that's an interesting thing. And we kind of feel that towards Thanos too, of like, I think what you're doing is really wrong, dude. But also your conviction, I kind of respect. Yeah. Like, and it's it's interesting. And part of it is is I think the conception of the character, which obviously they have taken a broad deviation from any comics characterization of him, where it's the whole courting death thing. Yeah, yeah. Which is how they introduced him in Avengers One. Yeah. Which is not who he is in this. 
I think that's very smart. You know, another one of the things that has made Marvel successful is, you know, taking what they need to from the comics, but also taking what, you know, leaving behind what doesn't work. Yeah, you know? or what certainly wouldn't work in a movie. Exactly. And they've done a lot of good stuff like that. So I think that the conception is good. I think the writing is great. I think, like, the dialogue Thanos has is really good. And I think, more than anything, Josh Brolin is so good. And that is such left-field fucking casting for uh-huh, Thanos. Yeah. And I just, until I saw the movie, I thought it was weird casting, and I didn't know how it would work. And then you watch him in action, and you're like, yes. Because Joss Brolin has that kind of rugged respectability to what he does, where he can just imbue humanity into kind of any size role, whether it is sleazy and kind of amoral like his character in Cesario or um, kind of naive but also very uh, equipped for the world like in No Country for Old Men you know pick a he's another actor he always does a great job and I think he really brought it here and I think what you said about him having a humanity like I think on paper if you told me like the arc with him and Gamora I'd say I don't know if I buy all that he sells it he sells it Joey Saldana sells it it works when you watch it because you can tell, like, despite his best inclinations, he has developed, you know, a familial attachment to this one person. And that is both the thing that will allow him to win and the thing that will destroy him. And it's, to me, it's performance and aesthetics that sell that. Yeah. And it's, it's I'm with you. It's the kind of thing that on paper that plot point sounds absurd to me, what they do to get with the Soul Gym. Like, down to... Fucking Red Skull being there. Unfortunately, not played by Hugo Weaving. No. He didn't could, show up. Yeah. Um, but, a close enough sound alike that I wasn't sure until I saw the Yeah, credits. me too. I like it. It also took me a second to is that supposed to be Red fucking Skull? And but be like, right, he does get teleported at the end of Capital One, not killed. Yeah. So this okay, this actually lines up in a way I never would have thought. That's one of my favorite little surprises in the movie, because I never saw that coming. Yeah, but aside from like the Red Skull stuff, like on paper the idea of like, oh you're going to try to sell that like Thanos really cares about Gamora doesn't really jive with me like especially before you see any of his performance in this movie it's like fucking no like because especially because it's like you really have to believe that he legitimately loves Gamora or it doesn't sell the like concept of the soul gym that you have to sacrifice the one thing you love in order to get the gym and so it's like you really have to buy that Thanos really cares for her or like that whole conceit just doesn't make it just breaks down and it, it's kind of dull well because they play it both as like a genuine emotional thing for him and like a horror thing for her yeah. of like her realizing that this ab- thoroughly abusive figure actually loved her to this degree and it is twisted and fucked up and I don't you know, does he love her or the idea of her? That sort of thing. But when she, you know, Zoe Saldana plays that realization very, very well. And it does feel kind of like a natural extension of the Guardians movies and their uh, really deeply ingrained themes of, like, abusive parents. Yeah. Which is, there are really complicated layers to those things. That's something those movies are all about, you know. Yeah. That it's 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 very rarely as simple as as, you know just pure evil in these circumstances. It's a lot of really fucked up and twisted human emotions that play into those sorts of scenarios. And so leveraging that for Thanos makes him so much more interesting than just, I want to take over the universe and kill everyone. Yeah, in the sense of, like, it's it's something that that moment was a big, like, I'm not going to say turning point because I like the movie, but it's like, it played its hand in a way that, like, legitimately really surprised me of, like, a direction to go with Thanos of, like, he, like... 
you can 100% see this whole story being told as the perspective of like like Thanos is the tragic hero. It's like 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 you know obviously he's still the villain of the movie. I think he's the protagonist, but he's still like this villainous role. But you can see that, and maybe it's part of like me like playing God of War at the same time and kind of thinking about mythology and that kind of stuff. It's like you know Hercules fucking killed his wife and child. It's like that's a part like that's such a big part of so many mythological stories. Kratos killed his wife and child. Kratos obviously yeah. I mean it's a whole Kratos is part Hercules right, in right. many ways in terms of his backstory. They didn't go very far afield no. coming up with the character of Kratos when they made God of War one. But it's like it's a very common sort of trope and idea in classical mythologies like Greek, Egyptian, Norse, whatever, wherever you go with it. Japanese, like it's all over the place of like that sort of tragic figure that destroys something they care about because they're tricked or because they need to do it in order to create something that like that we know today is like, oh, they made this mountain by sacrificing like the they're like the bones of their ancestors or something like that, you know? And it has this that element of Thanos. You get this brief, brief glimpse into like the story of this guy is probably this tragic hero story uh, that he has all this power and all this humanity, and like he really believes he's doing something right, and he sacrifices everything he has to create the world that we live in today. And it's like this almost like creation myth for this new universe. And that like brief window into that version of the story is so fucking fascinating to me, and it only works because of that like the combination of the technology and then Josh Brolin's performance and that moment where a single tear rolls down Thanos's cheek, like 100% sold to me. That's like, oh shit. Like he, this, he really feels this and the way they play that moment feels legitimate. Also mad props to Zoe Saldana. <clears throat> who Absolutely, is, yeah. I mean, she's great in everything. Like it's, you can say that about pretty much every actor in this movie because yeah. it's such a stacked cast. Um, and you know, one day I do hope Zoe Saldana gets like, properly her own franchise she can fully be the lead of because she is so absurdly good in everything she does but she has been so great as Gamora in the Guardians movies and in some ways this is kind of her most central role in a Marvel movie yet because she is by far the the Guardian I think with the most screen time in this film and the most centrality to the plot in a lot of ways and some of that split with like the younger actress playing little Gamora but she really plays a lot of these scenes so well and like her you know, relationship to the main action is a lot more central than a lot of the other characters in the movie who are either just trying to go after Thanos or are reacting to Thanos. She is directly interacting with Thanos and trying to keep things from him and having emotional revelations about this relationship with this horrible father figure. And, uh, you know, her her scenes with Peter Quill are so well done, her and Chris Pratt, and feel like... Again, like this is Guardians 3. Like this is the next step of their relationship after Guardians 2. And then when you get to the scene on the mountaintop when he flings her from it, that's the moment when I also realized, like, I think they're doing it. I think they are going all the way with this because they just killed Gamora. I don't think Gamora's staying dead because I think James Gunn, again, would march into Kevin Feige's office and punch him and be like, what do you mean I can't use Gamora in Guardians 3? I'm not going to make the movie. So, you know, you can't piss off everyone involved with your movies, obviously. Um, But just... Just that image and doing that has an, a real impact. And it feels like the movie is playing for keeps. Yeah. And it's just one of those things. I think it's one of the smart plays with this movie. Like going back like kind of like Doctor Strange stuff in Gamora. It would be very easy to make this movie and like try to like configure some way to make like all the, like the main involved people be Iron Man and Captain America and Hulk and like the big heroes that every Thor and the big heroes that everybody knows. Instead, it is mostly like the characters that feel most naturally 
closest attached to the central action, like Gamora, like Doctor Strange, for whatever their role is. Like, those are the characters that have the most central role in the story, not necessarily, like, the most popular ones. The only one where it feels like they kind of bended a bit is with Iron Man. But even then, they find, like, a, like, I've, again, there's something I was surprised at, like, a surprising amount of, like, space with his character development of, like, tying it directly into Avengers 1 and that invasion, which was such a turning point for that character of, like, that sort of, like, PTSD thing he had after that event that him talking about, like, like this is, like... I've always been leading up to this confrontation with Thanos. And Iron Man is pretty well grandfathered into any conflict because yeah. he is the founding father of the Marvel Universe as we know it. So, mm-hmm. yes, um, all of that works for me. Here's a pair of characters, though, who had to be elevated in I this I think film I know where you're going with this. That doesn't work as well for me. Yeah. And it doesn't not work for me, I should say. It just doesn't work as well. And that's Vision and Scarlet Witch. Yeah. I really love Paul Bettany and Elizabeth Olsen in these roles. I love them in general. Paul Bettany's great. In, again, I'm just saying this about all these actors. Yeah. Paul Bettany is another actor I will watch in fucking anything. And he's great in this. I think Elizabeth Olsen is great in this. They sell the shit out of all that stuff. And it's not so much that I don't buy that they're in love. And I don't buy that Scarlet Witch wouldn't want to kill Vision. I get all that. That's yeah. fine. I guess what I don't buy is specifically how it ties into the Wakanda stuff and the choices like Captain America and Black Panther and some of those characters make in that, you know, like, Black Panther is the sovereign ruler of Wakanda. He has his people to think about. I think he would be fully sympathetic to his friend Steve Rogers and his, you know, friend of a friend, you know, vision, and that there's this tough thing they're going through. I also think he would say... It's probably not worth risking my sovereign nation to get the stone out of your friend's head. I know he's a good friend... But maybe just destroy the robot, you know? And so I do think Wakanda as like a culture and those characters get sold out a little bit in the third act of this movie because they have no... in Other than Earth is threatened, which is frankly too abstract a thing to work as a motivation, they have no immediate reason to put all their lives on the line the way they do. Yeah, It's Steve Rogers and like the Earth crews fight, Scarlet Witch and Vision and all those people... Black Panther and everyone in Wakanda don't really have a tie to that. And I, I'm sure on a good day they would help, you know. They're yeah. very nice people and they have, you know, and, and Steve Rogers and, and Black Panther have this existing kind of relationship and everything. But I do think, like, when it comes to, okay, we're going to try to buy you time to save the robot. I just don't buy it, I guess. And that's the biggest thing in the movie that didn't work for me. And again, I don't want to say it completely didn't work because the scenes in Wakanda are still really fun. Yeah. And I like Paul Bettany and I like Elizabeth Olsen. I just think it's the it's the place where they have to stretch the most basically because of who has the Infinity Stone. Yeah, and I 100% agree that, with you that that's the movie, that's the part of the movie that works the least for me. That it is both, it sort of hampers a little bit of the Black Panther side, which is something that I suspect if this movie had been made several months from now, they would have made the Black Panther thing more central. Although, like, the first scene when they cut to Black Panther, it is so fucking good. The first thing they yes. cut to Wakanda, and he's just standing there, like, looking over this plane, and then you, that's where they sort of, like, reintroduce Winter Soldier and all that stuff. The White Wolf has rested long enough. Yeah, like, that's the, that's the part of the Wakanda stuff that most felt like, okay, we're in a Black Panther movie. Um, yep. But, yeah, once they go back to, like, the big battle... I agree, like, it doesn't, I don't buy that the Black Panther that we know would have, like, sacrificed so much for this. You would have to have either, like, shown, like, worldwide destruction on a scale that means, like, this is, like, our last stand because, like, everything else is fucked. You could have maybe done that. And it also, it's a consequence of, like, 
Scarlet Witch and uh, Vision being two characters from one of the weakest movies, like the weakest Avengers movie. They don't have like their own movie. They weren't very present in any other of these films. I don't even know that they did Scarlet Witch and Vision pop up in any other movie. Well, this all comes from Civil War right, because yeah. that's where they're in, and that's where their whole romance right, thing that's starts. Right. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, so yeah, they're in Avengers two, and then they're in Civil War, and even then, they're not in a particularly like central role in Civil War either. So it's like. They just feel a bit out of place in the sense of they they have a really central role in the plot, but they haven't even had, like, at least Doctor Strange has his own movie, you know? At least Gamora is part of, like, the main cast of two Marvel movies. It's like Scarlet Witch and Vision, like, I, like we kind of know those characters, but their relationship hasn't been developed to the point that, like, I can totally buy it. I still think it works better than it has any right to. Oh, absolutely. Given, given that it works, like, maybe 50%, you know? Yeah. It just doesn't go the full 100. And I think... You know, obviously the thing Marvel is doing is so difficult because you're basically telling the story. You're laying the tracks while the train is coming, right? Yeah. And so in Avengers 2, it probably made perfect sense to put the stone in Vision's head and, like, we'll deal with that later. And, you know, Vision does have a larger tie-in in that Paul Bettany has been there longer than anyone other than Robert Downey Jr. and Gwyneth Paltrow because he's Jarvis, you know? Yeah, exactly. So there is that relationship going on. But honestly, like, if you knew what story you were going to tell in Infinity War down the road, I feel like further back, you would not have had that sixth stone with Vision. You would have had it in Wakanda. You would have had, like, the Black Panther has to protect this stone. And that's why there's the war in Wakanda. And instead of Steve calling Black Panther and being like, can we come there? I think it would be Black Panther calling Steve and being like, let's get some backup. And he would bring the Avengers in. And then the fight would be in Wakanda because that's where the stone was. And then that gives an implicit, obvious reason for Black Panther and his people, which is also important. Like, Like, I love M'Baku. He's awesome. And I, you know, he and Black Panther are friends by the end of Black Panther 1. But I do, I, I don't know if he would show up for some random white dude's fight. You no, know? absolutely Again, not. Again, that's the thing. But if it were, this is Wakanda's like heirloom or something, yeah, exactly. that would be different. You, you could 100% phrase it as like, frame it as this is one of like, it's both vibranium and this thing. Like this like thing that gives us access to all this technology. That's yeah. like part of like this arrived here thousands of years ago and like we kind of built our culture and our technology around it it's like important to what who we are yeah i could buy that because you know they started the whole infinity stone thing all the way back in the first captain america with the tesseract so like they were already like crossing off stones and by the time you got to black panther all six were accounted for they knew what they wanted to use them for and there's just no more room for it um so i think that's the problem and i do think if you you know got Kevin Feige under the truth serum or something, he'd be like, yeah, of course, if I knew we were going to go that far. But when I started, I didn't know we'd get to make Black Panther. So, exactly, you know, yeah. I think that's part of it too. So, you know, I think under the, under, like, with the cards they had to play, because this is years of movies, right? I think they played it about as well as they could. Um, I still think, I wonder if there's a way within the existing structure you could have given Black Panther to everyone more of a reason to do that or highlight that, like, you know, no other place on Earth is better equipped to fight than, you know, Wakanda. You could kind of draw attention to that. But at the end of the day, is it still fun to see all of them fighting together in Wakanda? Of course it is. Yeah, it's still fucking cool. awesome. Yeah. yeah. Wakanda's it, great. It's just like, the it, it, it almost stands out more because the rest of the movie is so elegant. That it's yes. like this one little hitch they have. Yeah, and I agree with you. It's something that like... You know, there is a reason why we did not do a podcast for this movie that we've done with a couple of, like, take all the things we know about this movie and make up a plot for it that we did for, like, Spider-Man 2 and and Justice League and some of the, or Batman v Superman, I think, was our other one. It's like, 
I don't think we could have come up with a better way to do this than these guys. Like, not no, even it seems like it was incompetent hands. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's something where it's like I don't, I would not be able to solve that problem. You know, no, it's... without again, without like, without like this like tremendous knowledge we have now, and then like going back in time and just changing things up to arrive at this point cleaner. Exactly. So, but again, I still generally like the scenes. Um, you know, I I think you know by the end when it's you know Elizabeth Olsen has to fire the blast at Vision and and all of that. It's still there is enough like emotional resonance and weight to it. Yeah. And then of course Thanos just reverses time and we have to watch Vision die twice. Yeah. <laughs> like this movie is a bit sadistic at the end. Like they do that with Vision. They make you watch Spider Man die for like two minutes. It's just the most heartbreaking thing. Tony I've gets seen fucking in forever. Impaled. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about death then, okay? Because there's a lot in this movie. The first scene of this movie is fucking ruthless. Oh God! Yeah. I mean, I think there's a legitimate question to be asked about the intro to this movie: of does it cheapen Thor Ragnarok, and if it does, how much? That Asgard is still just fucking decimated, despite yeah. their best efforts. I don't really know. It depends on where they go within the next movie. But uh, Heimdall and Loki sure seem dead. Yeah, and. I'm very... It's sad, but it also feels like that's exactly kind of how you had to start this movie. Yeah. Because you have to get Thor specifically to his lowest point. And there is also just a certain, you know, cruel but excellent logic to taking the previous big bad of the Marvel Universe, Loki. Yeah. And having him killed in the first scene by the new big bad, uh, Thanos, to establish Thanos' evil credentials. I also, like, what else were you ever going to do with Loki? He had really reached... He's so great in Thor Ragnarok, but I also don't know. Once Loki has turned good, yeah. the next step in his character evolution is death, frankly. So I think using him in that way is impactful and it works. And I think that whole opening is great. Yeah, and I think specifically with Loki, the way that they continue his thing from the end of Thor Ragnarok, it really feels like he's chosen the side of Thor and Asgard and all that stuff. And he's kind of reconciled a lot of his issues with his own past. That, you know, he that scene where he tries to trick Thanos and, you know, I love that Thor sees that Loki, like, summons the dagger behind his back so that Thor knows, like, what's going to happen, basically. I think, like, all that stuff is really elegantly played out. And like you said, it is very effective at setting up Thanos, also having him fight the Hulk and just that smack great. the Hulk around and, like, smacking the Hulk around so bad that the Hulk's like, I'm done like, it feels like the Hulk has experienced embarrassment for the first time in his, like, like cognitive existence. He's like, I no, I'm not going to come out anymore, Bruce Banner, because I can't face anybody anymore. Because I'm the Hulk. I'm supposed to smash everything and anybody. And this dude just laid me out like a fucking pancake. It's like, I can't do anything. That is kind of one of the few arcs that goes truly unresolved in this film. Because the Hulk just will not come out until the last minute. And he's still Mark Ruffalo at the end. And yeah. we'll deal with that next time, I guess. But yeah, that's all great. Um, there are some unanswered questions that... This is part of why I feel like we need Thor Ragnarok 2 at some point. Yeah. Of like, if he lost half of the Asgardians, where are the other half? I hope they're okay. I want to see Thor go establish his new Asgardian colony yeah. and try to rebuild his civilization. Because there's definitely a really good movie to be made yes. there. Yeah. Also, all our other favorite Ragnarok characters like Valkyrie and the Big Rock Dude, they were on that ship, and I really hope they're on the side that survived. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that's like the the hand they left is like okay right. we have those new characters like conspicuously missing yes yeah, yeah because uh there is a line where they they included much of every support every character supporting cast but they couldn't include all of them yeah that, that would be, so, be a cast of hundreds yes heimdall gets a great yeah. action to go out on and now idris elba 
can star in movies again more substantially. Yeah, maybe they will, at the end of the next movie, they will rewrite reality to the point that Idris Elba can now star as like an actual superhero in like a mainline his own franchise, because that would be cool. I that would, would accept cool. it. I, you know, Heimdall isn't enough like makeup and stuff that I think you can just accept the double casting. Yeah. But yes. Um, yeah. Also, like, Idris Elba doesn't sound like that, so he would True. have a different voice. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, he gets to send Hulk to Earth. But yeah, no, that's a great opening scene, and... Yeah, just ruthless. It kind of shows you what path we're on, you yeah. know. And I, I, you know, some of these deaths are obviously going to be reversed, like all the people going to dust at the end. But I think it's pretty clear, like, Loki and Heimdall are done, right? Yeah. I think there's done. a chance that Loki can come back. I okay. don't think they would bring Heimdall back. I don't see, like, yeah. that, would be, that would feel pointless. Like, I think I just, there's, depending yeah. on if they want to do more Thor movies and stuff like that, I could see them. If there's any character that can come back to life, it's fucking Loki. It is. I, I mean, they just, they go out of their way to say, like, no more resurrections. I think he's yeah. done for good this time. I also just, even in another Thor movie, I'm not sure where Loki goes from here. Yeah, I agree. So, we'll see. Yeah. I, Thor is the one that, like, got reinvigorated so close to the end of its trilogy that it's yeah. the one I most want to see continue of, like, the original three heroes. Yeah. But, yes. Um Good stuff all around there. What are some other, like, significant scenes to talk about? I, we've hit a lot of the big ones, I feel like. Yeah, there's some that's... I love all the stuff with Thor and the, like, dwarf oh, star yeah. forge with... Uh, that's a, Peter uh, Dinklage. Yeah, Peter Dinklage as, as the giant dwarf, which that's is very great. good. Yeah, all that stuff is just fucking awesome. Well, it's one of the things I really love about this movie is how much world building there is. Because I just love, like, good world building. Yeah. And just, you get to go to all these other, like, aspects of the universe and see all these cool things and get some nice lore dumps like you do there. And, of course, Thor, like, keeping something open so a star can pass through him is a pretty badass yeah. thing to do. It's, again, it's just really extremely fortuitous that this movie came out so close to God of War <laughs> because it's like, it makes me enjoy both of those more. I know, like, it does. Fucking, yeah. Yeah. It's, That's some God of War shit like I could totally see Kratos doing this to yes. make his axe like do two more damage <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly um, it's I did think of this about God of War we no longer need a Thor game because God of War has pretty much done what yeah. that game would do I mean so far that now Thor has an axe instead of a hammer yes exactly I, I think they were they saw God of War in development and were like we gotta go that path yeah it's so, pretty yes. fucking cool <laughs> No, that's great, and uh, I love Peter Dinklage, little role, but he's very, very good, as he always is in different yeah. things. Um, what other scenes? I knew there was another scene I wanted to talk about. Uh, that scene with Thanos, the flashback we get with oh, yeah, him and yeah. Little Gamora, I think it's a really good scene yeah, in terms it's... of characterizing him. I almost think that should be like the cold open to the movie, and then we get the Marvel logo, and then maybe do the thing. That would maybe be too many openings, yeah. but it's like... I don't know if there's any good place to put it. I think they found probably the best place. Uh, but I still, I really like that scene. Yeah, that seems... Because also, I just love the way that that scene... Because it both sets up his affection for Gamora. Because he is, like, surprisingly tender there. Uh -huh. In the particular the way that he keeps her from looking at the execution that happens behind her. Yeah. But then also, it's like the nature of that execution is so visually just, like... It's just so perfect that they split like this massive group of people into two halves and just murder one half and leave the other half fine. It's just this perfect visual representation of, like, of what Thanos thinks is the right thing to do. It's like, we just call yeah. this. Like, and I like it. He also has that line in like kind of the final confrontation where he's like, you know, like just completely unbiased. Like the poor, the rich, young, old, every like it's just you just randomly select people and kill half of them and you like stabilize this ecosystem. 
We also have the thing with the dagger he has, which Gamora yeah. then has through the whole movie. And there's also that there's a nice uh, verbal payoff later when him and Gamora are talking, and and she's saying, you know, you did horrible things to my society, and he says, it's paradise now. No one knows poverty. No one knows this. And you again, you don't agree with him, but you see why he has. He sees the outcomes he wants. So like he thinks he's doing the right thing. Yeah, he has this perspective that is so detached and removed that like yeah he can only see yeah. the things that he wants to see the actions he's committed yep yeah. um oh uh, I, I one other while we're talking about individual scenes the funniest line in the movie to me is when the guardians of the galaxy meet iron man and dr strange and everyone and they're having their big fight and someone goes wait wait who is gamora or someone says where is gamora and someone says who is gamora why is Gamora? Drax <laughs> says. At that, I laughed like a lunatic at that line both times I saw it, and it is. I love Drax. Drax yeah. is so great. Yeah, that whole scene is is one of the most elegantly done uh, necessary scenes in the hero crossover where the heroes fight each other. Yes. It's contracted in the like the blood con- oath of the universe. It has to happen every single time. You know, it's, Avengers 1 has that great scene. Avengers 2, like Iron Man and Hulk and people fight. It's like, fucking this one. Obviously, Civil War, like half the movie is them fighting. And this one, you not everybody fights each other when they encounter each right. other. But you have to have at least this one scene. I thought it was a very good version of that. Yep. Uh, the whole opening in New York, the fight with Doctor Strange, Spider-Man, and Iron Man. It, that's all so great. You also yeah. have Wong there, which I understand why Wong is not in more of the movie. But I do wish Wong was in more of yeah. the movie because I love Wong. He's very good with what he's he is in. He and, is, yeah, and that scene where uh, Bruce Banner tries to turn into the Hulk and can't, and it's yeah, it's it's the best. It's the best erectile dysfunction joke I've ever seen in a Marvel movie. <laughs> That'll be next week. Top ten erectile dysfunction jokes in Marvel movies. Yeah. No, but it's got that great line. You're embarrassing me in front of the wizards. <laughs> yeah, I also yeah, I love that Tony just consistently refers to Doctor Strange as a wizard. He says that to Spider. Yeah, Peter says, "Hey, Mister Stark, what's going on? Uh, an alien came to steal a wizard's necklace." <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, great. All that's great. I mean, the movie I think has a very good balance of humor in that it knows generally when. To, I think there are a couple moments actually where they could probably. Tone like take their foot off the gas a little bit on the jokes like near the end, but overall like it's got a really good mix where you are consistently laughing, but those jokes don't undercut the drama. Yeah, and it's one of the things of like the benefit of having all these like very naturally funny characters because it's kind of thing of like Chris Hemsworth is just really funny as Thor. Like like we yep. we've known that forever. We really knew that after Thor Ragnarok, and it's something that he just does that same thing he did in Ragnarok of being able to mix like a dramatic performance and a comic performance really seamlessly so that even in his most dramatic scene which is the scene with uh rocky raccoon he's still like there's still humor in it and it's not the character making jokes but it's the way that chris hemsworth plays thor as this like big lug is funny or and then when he's sacrificing himself and he has that or like like almost sacrificing himself to keep the door open for the star and he says he's like it will kill you it's like only if i die that's what killing you means. It's like it's you know it's a dramatic scene, but it like it feels really natural that that character would say that in that moment. It's it's why I want another Thor movie because <laughs> like I feel like I don't ever need another Iron Man movie. I don't really ever need another standalone Cap movie because I think like they've not because they're bad. I just think they've they're very good and they've done what they need set yeah. out to do. But Thor like Thor one and two are fine, and Thor two is very funny. But they so hit their stride with Ragnarok and with his recent appearances. And, like, I think they've nailed his characterization. They've made him more powerful than ever. I, I just I want to see more of it. That's all. Yeah. Um, 
the editing in this movie, I have to give praise to. I talked earlier yeah. about how they like they let scenes breathe. Like, there's a lot of moments where I could just tell. Like, a good example is when there's a long sequence of scenes with the Guardians, where there's the scene where um, Gamora asks Star Lord to kill her if she falls into Thanos' hands, and then you get to choke with Drax about standing still. That feels like they, that had to be James Gunn came in for a day and wrote that scene. It's so out of Guardians yeah, One and Two. It's very funny. Normally, you would cut there and go somewhere else, but they keep with them to landing on the planet, meeting Thanos, having the fight, and so it's a big like fifteen twenty minute chunk. And those scenes have you know sustained impact because we don't cut away in the middle of it, yeah. and they consistently do that. And then near the end, when we start intercutting more rapidly, it has more impact because we're intercutting with you know the fight on Wakanda, uh, Thor getting the star thing ready, and everyone fighting Thanos on Titan or like fighting around the big falling yeah. moon and everything. And so you have like multiple cascading climaxes. I just think the the editing in this movie is super impressive, and it's for this kind of big movie, it's often more perfunctory than it is impressive but this is such a structural challenge of a film and they really cracked it again like as you said it's two and a half hours long it feels it just goes by like that it's so fast you know Uh, but it also doesn't feel too fast you know like it just it's the right length I think it's the right pace it doesn't really feel bloated to me there's like I wouldn't point to a scene I would cut it feels like this is the right cut of the movie yeah yeah and like thinking of the editing uh, and like all that stuff I think one of the most impressive elements of that is right at the end, everything with when Thor comes in, chops Thanos in the gut, and then Thanos says, you should have aimed for the head and snaps. Cause from, and the way that right when it snaps, it then goes to this weird ethereal plane or whatever that, that Thanos is in. And, and like you said, like, like letting these weird moments breathe. And it's like he's there and looking at like the child Gamora in the back. And like that scene, like goes for a bit and then it like very violently cuts back to where we were with Thanos and like his gauntlet destroyed and I love that like they let the way that that moment is edited I don't know how you like felt when you watched it but for me I didn't fully register quite what was happening until about halfway through the ethereal plane I was like oh wait he snapped like that's what he because they set up that snap the finger line a couple of times earlier in the movie and it's that kind of thing that you hear that line, like, it's a cliche line, of like, oh, I can do this with the snap of my fingers, and nobody ever does anything with the snap of their fingers because it's a figure of speech, right? It's, yeah, it's no, the expression. just did it. It's like, yeah, you don't actually do that. And this is like, I feel it's like it'll be like our generation's version of the end of Watchmen, where it's like at the end of Watchmen, Ozymandias, you know, says this thing, it's like, what do you mean do it? I did it 30 minutes ago. And then, you know, the next issue begins with, like, all of New York being destroyed and the, the bodies and the blood. And this is like that of, of being, like, in this moment, like, they can still maybe pull this out. They can still maybe do this. And something weird happened where Thanos is, maybe he's dying. Like, I don't know what's happening. And then halfway through that is, I think, is around the time of, like, when Gamora says... Like how much did it? How much did it cost? Or how much did what? What price did you have to pay? Or whatever she asks, and it's like when she says that line, it's like, oh fuck! He literally snapped his fingers, and literally he finished. Like literally, he just won in that moment. Yep. And that that in the way that the editing lets that moment, that realization play out without it just like telling it to you is so fucking smart. It's so well done. I love how they pace that entire climax where they come really close to beating Thanos. You know, Scarlet Witch destroys the stone. Thor comes in and impales him on the axe. And Thor really is powerful enough to go toe-to-toe with this guy. Yeah. But he, what, he should have aimed for the head, as Thanos said. And then 
they start disappearing. And that's the other thing, is that like the rhythms of the movie are so well done, where we've had so much fast action, and then when everyone's disappearing, it slows down. Yeah. And you have longer shots, and you have longer scenes, and people are going away, and you have Peter Parker just agonizingly slow disappearance of death. Yeah, they uh, really put it like to, to Iron Man at the end of this movie. He's like stabbed. He saw like kind of like like right in front of Doctor Strange of like the whole process going as like because most other people were not there to see the time gem get like taken uh, by Thanos, and then he just has to watch everybody else he's with except for the weird cyborg lady Karen Gillan uh, like disappear in front of him is like you know his like almost like foster son Peter Parker like vanishes right in front of him is like eh, they leave him a fucking shit hand at the end of this movie. Yeah, and. You know, we will have to wait for next year and the next movie to see, like, what what were the, the creative choices that led them to disappear the people they disappeared. Yeah. But uh, I do love that Iron Man is left on a planet alone with Nebula. Yeah. Which, again, not, would have not have expected that five years ago. Yeah. So, kind of an amazing way to end things. You know, I am sad the next movie will not have a bunch of, you know, Spider-Man and everyone else together in one movie. But I am also really interested in the prospect of having pared down everything and getting kind of back to basics. What is this next, you know, culminatory Avengers movie going to yeah. be? And one thing, weirdly enough, one of the things I'm most excited about is what do they do with Thanos in the next movie? Like, yeah. And obviously that, like, goes into what is the, like, nature of what they do. Because obviously whatever it is is going to have to, like, shift reality in some dramatic way to bring back... Spider-Man and Black Panther and everybody so that we can have more movies. Yes. Right? Now, did you see the post credit scene? Yes. Yeah. It's, a, it's a good one. This yes. was a substantial one because we get Maria Hill and Nick Fury again and Sam Jackson finally gets to say motherfucker on screen as yeah. Nick Fury. Right, right as he evaporates. Yes, and is calling Captain Marvel. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Because that's the thing is they're also going to bring in some new people. So we're going to have Captain Marvel next time. We're going to have Ant-Man and the Wasp, I know, are confirmed in the next yeah. one. And Hawkeye should be there and everything. Because they all shot substantially, just not for this movie, I think. Yeah. Um, so, yes, we'll have some new people there. I am very excited to see Captain Marvel. It sounds like they have big plans for her. Yeah. Um, it is going to be interesting to see. Like, Captain Marvel, I know, is a prequel. It's set in the 90s. Like, Sam Jackson's going to have both eyes and everything. So that's cool. Yeah. Um, Ant-Man and the Wasp, I assume they're just going to play it as it's set before Infinity War. It'd be really weird if halfway through Ant-Man and the Wasp, Michael Douglas disappears and then they're like, <laughs> fuck, what do we do now? Fuck, what if that's the post credit scene for Ant-Man and the Wasp is like half the cast just disappear and it's like, they uh... I mean, they're probably going to do that. Yeah, that's, that would be fucking amazing. Yeah, it it does kind of feel like... I don't know. I don't know where you would put Ant-Man and the Wasp. It's going to feel kind of weird to have a movie like that in between these two Avengers movies. But I'm still there for yeah, it. Yeah, I think it, it, one of the things, it works because Ant-Man's not in this one. So right, yeah. it kind of works for me. Just yeah. keep it separate. Yeah. So, uh, other thing I want to say uh, about the production of the movie is Alan Silvestri came back oh, yeah. to score this one. He had only previously scored the first Avengers movie. Um, but Alan Silvestri is one of the greats. He's really good at what he does. Uh, and he killed it here. I think this movie has a really good score. Yeah, it's, it's one of the more notable scores for sure in the Marvel movies, which is something they've been better at with yes. Thor Ragnarok, Black Panther. It this helps when you get a real fucking composer, like, yeah. like Mark Mothersbaugh or Ludwig Göransson or here Alan Silvestri, who, 
Alan Silvestri is one of the kind of few guys left who can do the John Williams-esque thing competently, you know? And so, like, he leverages themes here really well. Like, when Cap comes in, part of why you're applauding is it's playing the Avengers theme. And that's one of the few recognizable Marvel movie themes, and Uh it's very tied into him. So, uh... I actually, it might, it's, because he also wrote, the, I should, forgot, he also wrote the score for Captain America, the first Avenger. Yeah. And some of that is in here, too. So, like, there's some really good musical build-up here, and I'm just, I'm glad they got him back. He did a really good job. One of the MVPs of this movie for me, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the movie looks good. We said it's edited well. Acting is so good. Uh, the Russo brothers are heroes for wrangling all this fucking stuff. My yeah. brother and I were talking about this on the car ride home, like... Imagine the production like nightmares of having to coordinate some of this. Like God, yeah. Black Panther in this movie has the suit from the movie Black Panther, which means he has the nanobot thing where the, there's the purple stuff that can emit the energy he pulls yeah. in. Black Panther came out three months ago. Mm-hmm. I think Black Panther actually shot after Avengers Infinity War. So you've got a coordinate of like, okay, we're going to have Black Panther in our movie. Let me ring up Ryan Coogler. Uh, Ryan, what does Black Panther look like in your movie? Like, let's make sure we, you know, coordinate the production design. Wakanda has to look the same. Okay, we're done over yeah, here. I mean, they fucking brought in M'Baku from yes. Black Panther. It's like, even if, like, they could have justified his role more, like, there's that little tiny interaction. There's, like, gee, a couple lines of dialogue between Black Panther and M'Baku right before the battle begins. It's like, hey, thanks for showing up and helping me out. It's like, anytime, brother. It's like, okay. Yeah, I buy that. It's... Yeah. But, like, all of that, like, to, you know, they had to do that in so many different areas of this movie for movies that were, like... You know, in production while they were shooting yeah, their own movie, like everything about Thor, you yeah, know, his whole look, like the 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 situation he's in at the beginning, like yes. all the shit with Hulk. What do you think about Thor getting a new eye from Rocket? I, I, I'm fine with that. I would have preferred if he stayed a pirate angel, but I, I you know. yeah. Yeah. It is less CGI to do the, uh, just have him have an eye and you change the iris color. Yeah. It's a little easier. But yes, uh, I would have preferred the eye patch too. However, it is such a good payoff of Rocket constantly taking people's body parts that God. he's able to use that. The line he has with the Witcher Soldier, I'm gonna get that arm. And that's also that little moment with Winter Soldier and Rocket Raccoon is one of the better... Uh, like action scene things that happens where these st- picks up Rock Raccoon it spins them around as they shoot in a circle is so fucking good. It is. All right. Anything else to say about Avengers: Infinity War? The last thing I want to say because I, I think I think we have talked a lot about this movie. One thing I want to say because I remember reading your tweets. I think when you first saw this movie about the theater experience surrounding this very good movie is I was seated right in front of. A child who, when they, him and his mother, and I think maybe his dad was there too, sat down. I heard his mom try to explain to this, like, probably six to seven year old boy what the concept of silence was, basically. It's like, from there, like, ah, fuck. She wasn't very successful. It's every single time. It, like, I was fine with it, but every single time, I swear to God, any character appeared on screen that had been off screen for maybe three to four minutes... This kid would shout out their names like, Mom, it's Black Panther. It's like, yeah, no shit, it's Black Panther. It's like, it's Captain America. I think that's Thor, Mom. Like, every single time, Mom's like, shh, no, when we watch movies, we have to be quiet. We have to not use our mouths when we're watching a movie. I was seated in front of six children, and 
uh, we were we were you know it's big auditorium, so they let us into the theater like ninety minutes early. So we were there, and oh my god, I had the most stressful ninety minutes leading up to the movie because those kids were running around the theater, they were screaming at the top of their lungs, they were throwing stuff at the screen, like it was a chaos. And their dad was just so nonchalantly like, "Don't do that." And they would also like whenever they would move around, they would just like grab the back of our chairs and rock them. It was horrible. Now, mostly for the movie, they were fine, and actually, there were some very enjoyable moments. So you know, there's that great line where Black Panther says, "You know, evacuate the city, raise all defenses, and get this man a shield." Um, when he got to the part where he says, "Get this man a shield," three of the older kids, like the six, seven-year-olds, were like, they all said it with him because it's yeah. from the trailer. That made me laugh. That was great. Um, the other notable thing, this is not the movie, but a trailer that was shown before the movie, both times I've seen it, was Incredibles 2. Oh, cool. And um, for the Incredibles 2 trailer, both times I saw it, the movie, all the kids in the audience were just saying the lines with the characters, and the entire audience like was clapping at the end of the trailer like... Uh, I think Incredibles 2 is going to be a bit of a hit, Sean, because people I, yeah. clearly, like, I have not seen reactions to that, like that for a trailer in a while. Like, I think people are hungry for another one of those movies, and it helps that it looks really good. Yeah, the, the only thing I had like that, because we didn't have Incredibles <clears throat> 2 in front of my showing, but we they did have the new, the, the most recent solo trailer. Yeah. And there was like, and I think the, the trailer's good. It, it's much better than the first trailer. But there's one guy in the audience that was just like, yes! Yes! Star Wars! <laughs> like, really? Like, it's a good trailer and the movie's probably going to be fine, but like, you're that excited about this movie? Yeah. It, it wasn't everybody. It wasn't even the other people in the group with this guy. It was like this like 30-year-old dude just getting super, like, audibly hyped about this Star Wars trailer. Maybe he was on some kind of scientific trip to Antarctica for the last five years, <laughs> and he's just not aware that Star Wars is a thing again. Yes, yeah, like, oh my god, they're making more Star Wars movies, and they're making a Han Solo prequel? Amazing! Yeah. Holy crap! Chewbacca's right. in this! <laughs> Alright, well I think we have exhausted most avenues of conversation for now. This was a good movie. I'm very much looking forward to next year's movie. Uh, I, I think Marvel's done something special here. It's unbelievable. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's a thing of you saying like thinking about the production. Like I want to know what the storyboards for this fucking movie looked like, and like the room when they're trying to figure out how you're going to edit this, how you're going to like tie this shit together. They it's they insane. must have gone through like an entire like small country's GDP worth of fucking post post-it notes to fucking put this movie together. I mean, remember also they shot and wrote a second movie at the same time. Yeah. That's nuts. All right. Uh we will be back next week. We will be talking about God of War in more spoilery detail. Yep. We'll do another Doctor Who at some point. We've got lots of good stuff coming. Uh we'll see you guys next week. I'm going to go play God of War and pretend that I'm Thor while I'm doing it. That sounds like a good evening.